0: I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chata Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chata Foundation, Meeting the Potential of the Choctaw People.
0: Imagine having a dispute with your neighbor or a family member or rival, and the only way to settle it is to set up two teams to play a game so brutal, so fierce, that the results could mean death. You face off, drums playing in the background, pounding to a beat just like the heart, which is 60 beats per minute. With each beat, the two teams gear up for this game almost as they would for war – Screaming their cries of assumed victory before even starting, the drumming and shouting all accumulating until released to play. There is no protective equipment and very few rules, and so the game begins, injuries and all. The preciseness of hitting a tiny ball onto a small pole can only be best performed by generations of warriors passing down their skill and focus, that same focus that came from those who hunted the stealthy deer and the swift fish. Surely this game reflects centuries of these skills passed down from ancestors. Whoever wins, wins not just the dispute, but also their tribes, teams, and opposition's respect." Believe it or not, this game is still played today. However, it's played for fun, not to settle disputes. And one of the beautiful things is that it brings fellow natives together. It's called stickball, or in Choctaw, Kapachatoli. And it's as brutal a game today as it was many years ago. Teeth can be knocked out, limbs can be broken, and at the very least, even t-shirts are torn to shreds from opponents clawing their way to victory. Today, we'll hear from three experts in two parts on this topic, Stickball, Little Brother of War. So listeners, please welcome my first guest and fellow Choctaw friend, Brenner Billy. Halito Brenner, and welcome.
2: Halito, thanks for having us.
0: So glad you're here. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time about this topic.
3: It's obviously something that's exciting for people to know, and a lot of people actually don't know that stickball even exists. So... Thanks for all you're doing to make our culture and traditions come alive with your documentaries. So Brenner, tell us more about yourself.
2: Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, Oklahoma, and I graduated from there in 2009. And then I went to college for uh, numerous years and actually resided in Durant. Uh, From there, I actually started working for The Nation. And then um, my career working with The Nation and actually being in school at the same time, I had numerous departments. Uh, I worked for the language department, I worked with the cultural services departments prior. And then I worked for uh, human resources mm. and training development programs there for about four years. So I definitely had a lot of um, transitions, definitely. Yeah. A lot of transitions helped me professionally, too. I was able to speak better, get my point across from a cultural standpoint to other people who were not familiar with that. Mm-hmm. So that definitely helped me to actually, again, transcend what I knew culturally into the years of non-cultural years. That's
3: well, and you even helped me a little bit with my some of my words, so <laughs> yeah. much appreciated. Definitely,
2: I definitely understand it. So um, I grew up, you know, again, in Brooklyn. Bow. Majority of my family's there, still resides there. I have a huge family that's there, whole network within the current county area, uh, districts one and two, and even mm-hmm. some would say seven. Uh, just all the way around there so pretty much where I grew up from. And then my background, I am a Choctaw member Mm
4: -hmm. of the Choctaw
2: Nation of Oklahoma, but my heritage leans a little bit towards the Alabama Cachada or Qasadi, which they now reside in Texas. Okay. Tell us a
3: little bit more
2: about that. So yeah, the uh, Alabama Cachada tribe, they actually have a little reservation near Livingston, Texas today. Uh. So that's... Probably about a couple of hours away from Houston. Mm-hmm. But there they actually were removed from the original homelands from Louisiana, Alabama area to Texas around after the times that we were removed yeah. to Oklahoma. Yeah, 1830s-ish. So, yeah. And so my family, my grandmother's father, my nan, we call her nan, mm-hmm. he is the actual Cachada or half okay. Cachada. But they have a you know, distinctive relationship. Their language is very close to Choctaw. Some yeah. people will consider it as like, you know, how some people would, could understand Creek and Seminole yeah. you know, amongst the two. Like Choctaw and Chickasaw, mm-hmm. that kind of same dialect too. Like Choctaw can understand Chickasaw and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So the Cushada and the Alabama, they're actually two different tribes, but now they are considered one, which they actually are able to speak the same thing. Really? So like Choctaw, Chickasaw. So, so if you're down
3: there you can speak or understand at least to I, some degree, right? Or is it a dialect difference or it's
2: definitely a dialect difference and it's just it's so funny. whenever I was down there a couple of years that you know, we were just talking, just generally just talking to people and just some things that they would say that's you know in Choctaw is like one letter off. And I was like, oh. I wouldn't use that letter there, but I understand which right. I, I would ask, Did you say this? And they're like, Yeah and I was like well, we say this, and like, oh, yeah, it's so close. And it's like, like yeah.
3: Paoli, Oklahoma, we say Paola. <laughs> yeah,
2: there you go. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. So speaking of language, though, my career with the Nation, I was a part-time, as a student, uh, worker with the Chokta Nupai Kana, the School of Choctaw Language. Perfect. And I was to be a language teacher. And so there, I just, you know, I was trying to go through school and just be able to find a career because, you know, I was getting a little bit older, I was like, what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So okay. I just kind of clinged on to, you know, have an opportunity to work with my grandparents. And so I necessarily didn't work with them directly. I worked with all the other teachers more than I ever okay. saw my yeah. grandparents.
3: Oh, that's funny. <laughs> no,
2: they, it was like they meant to do that in rotation. So I was like, all right. I definitely had the opportunity to work with other teachers. And from there, yeah. I just, you know, I expanded. And so sometimes I would ask, you know, my grandparents this and that, but to a level that they... They thought of me speaking, I wasn't there just yet, but they were immersing, or having that immersive conversation yeah. with me.
3: Would you say you're fully fluent at this point?
2: I don't think so, no. Is
3: anybody really, I mean, it's such a rare... Um,
2: there are still some fluent speakers, some bilingual speakers. Like your
3: grandparents, right? Yes,
2: uh, if you want to hear chopped off first or speakers that have Choctaw first, they are still that generation. Mm. And then there are some generations that are probably a decade older than I am. Yeah. That Choctaw was probably the first language growing up, but then became more dominant with English. But today's society, people who are my age and younger, mostly English first, and then Choctaw learner, not Choctaw. So that's kind of yeah, that. Definitely the, what I understand, the, the challenge, even back then in and ten that we were facing, are we going to have Choctaw speakers in the next decade versus are we going to wow. make Choctaw speakers generally. So the education system it, it definitely put us on a platform to actually move forward to saying not other tribes are doing what Choctaw Nation is doing as putting, you know, a lot of these classes in through distance learning mm-hmm. throughout Choctaw country and even to colleges, which is fine and good. Uh, But we spent um, more time doing that than other reflecting on. Within the last five, four or five years, we actually started, the the department actually expanded more of actually incorporating Chota back into the departments of HQ Mm -hmm. and even to casinos, which is commerce, and then even uh, health services. So that was definitely um, the expansion. Uh, I would say whenever Minko Batten got into office, that he actually had you know, those non-core values and the main three that kind of set faith, family, and culture. Mm-hmm. That's where it was a pivotal point where actually was like, what is culture? And so that's where I actually got to be when I was in training. Yeah, That's where I wasn't the only one, though, but there was some other people that had different levels and degrees that were with management. For me, I was more about to you know, non-leadership and some supervisors. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely to get that culture. So... I had a good, uh, stable job, you yeah, know, to actually yeah. be part of that. So I had a soft skills training as well, but that was that movement, that those values, is what kind of brought some more lights to culture. Now, how far did we dive into that? That's another conversation and a whole nother thing, but still that is, no, that cool. is definitely pulling a business mindset a nation
4: mm-hmm. and
2: actually bringing up culture at the same time. And so even today, Chief Patton, uh, reflects that too.
3: So your grandparents are pretty much fluent and then you grew up um, hearing it I'm sure and then you've been working on continuing that language and then when you went to college did you were you around other Choctaw speakers at all
2: no I wasn't I very rarely saw native people at all really and so I went to the University of Central Oklahoma and there there was actually a multitude of you know other Ethnic groups representation there, and the Native community wasn't very big there at that mm-hmm. time. There were some people that were Native descent and that were probably tribal members, but none of them was trying to be involved in you know, like a group like people would say Native American Student Association or um, multicultural diversity, in which I was a part of that movement then. But we probably had probably six or seven students in the beginning, and then we kind of you know ventured out and. Mm-hmm some left and some replaced so it was just definitely not a big native community that was to me relative because i was Choctaw, but i wasn't a like a power goer and so a lot of the native tribes that were in there were from the plain style Mm -hmm. so again that there you have that clash of oklahoma the indian territory where Mm -hmm. there are all these tribes removed here so you do have that melting pot or that's multitude of tribal people. So whenever yeah. some people say, are you Native American or are you Indigenous? Some people say, yeah, and they're all the same. But then whenever I had firsthand meeting with my friend Ben, he was just, he was not Choctaw or any Southeast Native. He was uh, someone from the Plains tribes. And then I met some people that were Arapaho and people that were Kawa and then I had some people that were from the Northeast and I was like, I never heard of these things. And yeah. just, to me, my Native lens was expanded, but definitely my native expression got definitely smaller, because mm-hmm. definitely being that city, that area. So there wasn't that many people that were native there, and so I I didn't practice as much as the language or my identity as much in the culture. I did do a lot of, or a handful of things that were I was capable of doing that were Chalk specific, mm-hmm. but not a lot of people grasped the concept. Yeah. And so, because they were also you know, college overall is just trying to find who you are. Whether you find something that you're totally not and get interested in it, that's fine, too. We had some students that were definitely Native, but didn't fit the bill to being in a mainstream, but didn't want to go to full Native because they didn't fit that ever just in that gray space. Right. And so um, there were some things that we tried. So uh, I did a lot of stickball there because it's in my blood. You know, it's my family. Mm-hmm. And so it's that's, in your
3: DNA. Yeah,
2: definitely. So I just tried to do as much as what I could know what to do. And I hosted a game there around twenty, gosh, I can't remember now. Twenty ten, it had to be twenty ten because I graduated two thousand nine, so twenty ten, and I actually moved to Durant twenty eleven. That's what it was. Okay. So yeah, around twenty ten, that's when I actually had a, a little stickball event there. But it wasn't. I didn't have the connects, I and mean, you didn't have the type of the social media platform you do now.
3: Well, so, I mean, the first year of college can be challenging for anyone, but when you left home and went to college, you really faced some additional hardships. I mean, from when you and I talked about before, it was like you were always surrounded by your Choctaw folks, I mean, for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned how later that you had some culture shock, big city versus little town, not used to not seeing Choctaw faces, as you mentioned before. But then you talked about learning to walk two paths. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um... And so whenever I was going to school there, I did find some people that were interesting to me and some people that were relative to me. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually started to feel homesick more just because I couldn't just drive down there. You know, like some of these students that go and uh, school during the week and just go home because they're so close. I was yeah. four hours away or four and a half hours away from my home. It was what easy to just make that little drive and come back you yeah. know, every every uh, Friday evening and Sunday night, whatever. So whenever I saw some people that reminded me of home, which they were more country folk that -hmm. were also there too. Like they were there because they went to school as far as they could and similar. So they were non-native, but they were just, you know, had some of the values that I remember seeing at home. It's really kind of country, Mm -hmm. kind of hickish or, you know, people that had the same slang and just little same understanding. So, and then I actually did see an individual he actually became a really good friend of mine and still is a good friend of mine. Uh, he was actually a Choctaw Chickasaw mix too from Ardmore. Hmm. But I always played against his younger brother in stickball. And so <laughs> there I had a, I guess, a port or a connection with, because he was also around those companies yeah. too. So there I, I definitely started to come around more around there and just kind of open up a little bit coming out of my shell. being able to be sociable to those types of people, Um, because when I went to class, I just went to class and talked to nobody, and I just came back, and they happened to be a group of guys, and they were a fraternity, and I didn't know that, and I was like, because I just saw these big letters on this this house, Yeah. and I was like, no one really told me about that. I've seen movies and Mm -hmm. heard, you know, the term frat, and I was like, I'll never be one of those individuals that would be in a frat, and then... Whenever I started talking to them more, they were pretty cool individuals and just a multitude, just like diverse people. Mm. And so the values was what I was understanding and seeing more. And so I just liked hanging around them more. So I hung around them you know, like once a week, then it became a couple of days of the week. And then every event that they had, they were, they were in rush. And so when they were rushing to find new recruits, I kind of fell into one of those things and I was unsure. Mm-hmm. And so... I got out of it. So I had like a whole year before I actually made the decision to join.
4: Yeah.
2: But the thing is, though, they kept me around. Like they still invited me to some places to go hang out That's or go nice. eat. and uh, They had their own things that they do for the fraternity. But then what I liked about them is that they were graduating, too. Yeah. Like that was so how do I get on that level? then, you know, just some things changed. And so some people didn't show up the next semester. So I, I started seeing this mainstream society where, you know, everyone wants this everyone wants that everyone wants to work here everyone wants to do their own thing i just i just trying to take a taste of everything that was happening on campus and then off campus it's kind of the same thing and i was like i was wondering how this, these individuals had the supports or where they come from or if they made it on their own or if they had their own family that were supporting them i just kind of just looked at it and I, I, at the time when i saw those things happening. I was like, well, that's very fortunate for them. But then after all, when I started seeing those people that were working on their own and actually making things happen, like Mm -hmm. they would work a full-time job after school and then they would, you know, do all night studying just for them to sleep two hours, just go back to class and do it all over again. Yeah. And so that drive, that hustle is kind of what I loved because I kind of grew up from some hustlers. Mm -hmm. And so we don't (laughs) want you think of hustling. I mean, that's... Yeah. You actually... You know, make things to actually support your family. That's what I always grew up. My dad did sticks and my mom, she did uh, clothes, mm-hmm. uh, some of the regalia, some beadwork. My aunties did a lot of beadwork. And we just did a variety of things. And we always worked towards something, whether it was to celebrate, to have a gathering or a birthday party or someone's anniversary, someone having a baby, you know, some things like that where it's just to have a celebratory. So that hustle is what I kind of liked. And so I kind of wanted to dabble more into that side. Mm-hmm. But I was just, my hand was in too many things. I spread myself thin. And so I, I started to say, well, which one am I going to do? So I actually started to dabble more into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. I, I liked to, um, well, people would say kind of lobby today, but networking. I networked with a lot of people in the fraternity. When I ended up joining, I actually had a whole different realm people that were, you know, older, that were, Kind of like advisors that kind of led me to different areas. I went to conferences that I never thought I'd go to conferences, and those conferences I met other young gentlemen like myself at the time, mm-hmm. and they had different diverse backgrounds. And I was like, "Wow, this is just you know, just definitely opens your eyes." And you know how people would see social media today, like so many Twitter followers, so many Facebook followers. This is I actually saw it in person. Like there's all these people of all different colors, all different
4: yeah.
2: uh, backgrounds, and it was just a honest, you know, thing for students, uh, for young men to actually be part of that, you know, working society, but also for education mm-hmm. and also having a compassion for what they believed in to the fraternity. So I I was emphatic with that. So yeah, that's why I joined um, prior to that. And then when I joined, I saw uh, Tenfold. And so um, I started doing that a lot more and actually got to be more promoted held an officer's position in that. I was an educator uh, for new up- upcoming members. And so I was really doing a lot of that stuff. And a lot of my my identity as a Native American or as a Choctaw specifically,
4: mm-hmm.
2: I wasn't doing that as much. And so a lot of the language, you know, I still hear things at home and I would say things back in Choctaw, but then I had, you know, those Choctaw-isms never went away, but yeah. I, I started having this distinctive, like, taste where it's like, that's not really funny or like, you know, or that's not, you know, how you perceive it. It's not a high value as much anymore as I used to think. And mm-hmm. it's just kind of, you start to see, you get exposed to different things and you start to lose a different feel for those things. And yeah, I, I, I felt that, and I was doing some of those things, so I'm hanging around some people and they're like, Oh, why are you acting all different? And I was like, well, I just, you know, just don't see how that's funny. And, and then I started, I felt like I was too a bit uppity and I started noticing that not with, just my friends but some, some of my relatives mm-hmm. and my relatives you know again that's overall family and so like when I got to the mainstream of networking and business stuff like no one's your friend you know there's mm-hmm. their acquaintances and they help you out but um you know, not family, like family no not like family so when you actually make someone a family member that's not your family then you know, that's like all the time so I, I ended up having good friends coming out of that mainstream area then versus got rekindling and not only. I guess looking at my friends at home, like you can't do this or you should do that, it's more like, well, how do I introduce that to them to actually mm. expand it? Which they eventually did too.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's just probably a maturity thing too. Uh, sure, I don't sure. think I, I was maturing as fast as I thought I was back then, but
3: yeah, well, I mean, all these new worlds had opened up yeah. to you. I mean, from you went from a fish out of water, feeling like a fish out of water, and and standing out like a squirt thumb, and then not feeling like you're. Finding the right friendships or whatever, to then becoming a kind of a leader and feeling like you were getting a hold of things. But then sometimes the pendulum starts to swing too far. It's like, oh, you I'm pretty hot. That's yeah. bad.
2: Like you're just saying, you kind of explained it well to where you're not exposed to that. And you're like, but it is different, it's difficult. It's, just, it's about learning about yourself mostly. True. And like, true. when you're clinging on something, then you cling on to it. You Would you change know. it?
3: Like, if you could have gone to an all native college, for instance would you have done it?
2: If I knew then, I would have done it. Yeah. But if I had the ability to go back and do it, I probably wouldn't do it. Yeah. So like the path yeah. that I walked.
4: Yeah. Right.
2: But uh, yeah, if I if I knew, see, first of all, I'd, well, second of all, I never wanted to go to high school just because there's yeah. a lot of natives there and I was like, well, I just want to do something Went to different. different and I don't right. want to go that far from them.
3: Yeah. it says so Kansas, right? Yeah,
2: that's Kansas. But then again, I didn't know like tuition and stuff. I didn't understand that completely because right. whenever I was going to college. When I was in high school, I was just told, you better fill up those applications. Like, there's no, like, advisor at school. Like, they helped right. you if you needed help. But then as a Native person, I didn't want to ask for help because I was just ready to get out of high school. Yeah. School ball was just over. Just ready to go. Just ready to go. And then I'm getting told from, you know, my parents. My parents worked. And they were also, my mom was doing school, too. And so in my brother and sister were younger. They were seven and uh, nine years younger than I am. Wow. So it's like, I'm just that... That one that's about to leave, but needs yeah. to do it on their own, kind of. So
3: same. It was all on my own. Yeah,
2: but if I known that Fort Collins was available, or that mm-hmm. I could actually twist there and just went there, I probably went there.
3: Well, and you know, I mean, even then, I feel like if there's any young people listening today, I hope when you're in college that you'll look for those people who maybe do feel like they're fish out of water. It could mm-hmm. be any ethnicity, any person. It could be a white person. Doesn't matter, but. We should all come together as a community. We're all the way from home. Let's all try to help each other feel comfortable and invite people to do different things, activities, go to lunch together, whatever. So um, don't forget to to be kind and to
2: reach out. Yeah, definitely break those barriers that you hold against other people just the way they look. And then letting down your own barriers to to be open-minded. Yeah, I wasn't open-minded.
3: Okay, right. So
2: that's it. took me a year to be open minded when I was Mm. in school. So,
3: understandably, it's a protection element. Defensive, yeah. Now, eventually, (laughs) you went on to meet your lovely wife, and I love the story of how y'all met. How did you meet?
2: So, we actually met at the college that I transferred to, and just so happened that I had stopped going to college and actually went to work full time for cultural services. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that director at the Native American Institute he actually had a collaboration with the Chickasaw Nation. And so Choctaw Nation and Chickasaw Nation were kind of borderlining yeah. with Southeast Oklahoma State University. So they had a summer program for, like, students that are going to college. And that's probably the first time I actually had, uh, met my wife, but I wasn't, like, talking to her because she was Uh-oh. young. And so it wasn't until the next year um, that, well, we actually did a demonstration we had actually – or an exhibition – and we had, it was just a social game of stickball. And so it was all of them. And I'd done one before the year prior. So whenever I uh, did this year, that, that next year where my wife was at, um, she was just 18 and just turned 18 and was, you know, finishing up and going, probably going to go to college somewhere else. I think mm-hmm. that's what she was saying. And so, uh, that was kind of the deal where, uh, we actually played stickball. And I had some friends from the community in Durant, Durant area. Mind you, back then, a lot of people didn't play as much as they do now, so it was kind of like five or six main ones that were around this area we kind mm-hmm. of showed up and played and balled out. And so it was just always a fun thing, definitely, to have that social game. And so that social game is different than our orig- original uh, Ishtaboli or kapocha Tolli game. Mm-hmm. It allows women to have a better advantage by using hands or they could use sticks if they wanted to. But the objective is actually hit a uh, fish or a skull at a 20 foot post and so whenever the females play we always tell the boys or the males definitely do not hit the girls but they can hit you don't ever swing your stick
3: it'd be hard not to though there's so much going on it's moving so fast it is
2: just for the guys that remove their hands and use sticks it's definitely if you look at it from a learner's learner's perspective that it's all a new world so Hmm. but whenever we had them play um, I just remember these two girls it was her and her friends. They were actually, like, athletes. They were track stars and basketball players cool. and looked like some gazelles just running all over the place. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm not running not running nobody here. But what I can do is I can catch the ball, I can shoot it, and I can do a little bit of trick plays.
3: Plus, you're, like, seven feet tall. So I, <laughs> they only see you coming, and they just run away.
2: Well, the thing is that we told them prior that girls – can tackle the guys but the guys can't hit the girls because some of them were conditioned because some of them were actually cha- uh, creek and seminole and sometimes when yeah. you play in that they allow guys allowed to be roughhoused with the females so huh. that was some of our ground rules definitely from my perspective and from yeah. our director's perspective to not you know, be hostile to females so whenever we said that some of those girls ears kind of perked up and said, <laughs> okay and so we see some people getting thrashed some guys getting hit to the side and just like <laughs> a little mini war zone out there and, and the girls some of those, are
3: taking us down yeah.
2: and there's always been more girls that show up to those types of events than boys and just feel <laughs> so bad for the boys that are actually trying to learn at the same time and just get knocked out you know by a blind side that is awesome but yeah we, we kind of met in uh, that way and you know they were just running around and i do a little trick play on them just kind of like make them miss me or go after the ball or yeah uh, just because there's I, I used to play with a lot of older people and they would do those things to me when i was growing up so mm-hmm. i just kind of did the same thing yeah. So <laughs> you you meet you know a, a lot of performance or a lot of fast athletes but when they don't know how to the game then you have the advantage of where your skill takes a little bit more over than their speed and whatever yeah um but once they have that skill as well speed and You're probably out of luck if you're out of shape, which I was out of shape and I probably wouldn't feel it that day, but I just remember I would shoot and I would would hit that post or that fish. I think we actually lost that game. I think we lost twice, to be honest, because we were outnumbered almost two to one.
4: Really? Yeah, guys (laughs) versus
2: girls. But still, playing and being able to make people miss, that was just always fun.
4: Yeah. And
2: and I remember after the game, or that little game, we had a break and I think it was only like an hour or so, a lot of time, and then... All those students had to go back to the dorms. They stayed in the dorm for a whole week. They had a whole lot of things going on that week.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I just remember sitting in, under the shade uh, on this little pathway on the bench. And then she kind of comes up to me and just sits next to me. And she's like, hey. I was like, hey. <laughs> just like, just so awkward. Romantic. Just awkward. <laughs> and she was like, I like your hair. And I was like, thanks. You know, it Was your hair like,
3: nicely coiffed? No,
2: day? no, it was not. So... I used to have a a mohawk that went straight back, but it was long. So whenever it was growing long, long, I actually would have it in rubber bands and it would go all the way back and kept the sides shaved. And then whenever it got longer, I started getting it braided all the way back. Cool. So I had a little braided mohawk. She was
3: all about it.
2: I guess so. And then I asked her, I was like, why did you even come over there? And she's like, well, my bag was over there first. I was oh. like, really? I was like, "I said did not notice no bag over there.
4: Uh-huh. And so. Smooth. And
2: so after our conversational piece was like, I like your headband. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, dang, what else do you like? You know, I was just kind of like. just I like your headband. I like, was like, this young person trying to talk to me. I was like, I, I really wasn't really having it. She so she tells weird. me, that, reminds me of that every time. She's like, you didn't even like me, then. And I was like. You're just younger than I was. I don't know. I just I was in a different different phase at the
3: time.
2: I was going through some things, I guess.
3: Like you had blinders on. Yeah,
2: I had blinders on. I was like, you gotta be upfront with me. So focused. I know. I was like, I don't read nothing. I was like, you gotta be blunt.
3: That's hilarious.
2: And so she's like, yeah, I like that headband. I was like, yeah, my mom made it, and I was like, yeah, and I was always again about hustling. I was like, so just, I was like, hey, I can send you what she can make, and I was like, I'll sell it to you or something like that yeah <laughs> that's how our conversation started and it just ended really quick so i was just like i was just trying to be just strictly business and yeah i went until that end of that summer where they had i think it was the end of summer but they had actually had the jim thorpe games mm-hmm. and then uh, i think i was just coming back from the world series and we had lost you know in the first round in the world series at stickball in mississippi and so on my way back she started messaging me and she's like hey where you at and i was like why? I was like, because I was like, we haven't talked in like months. She's like, well, Chickasaws are here in Jim Thorpe. They're beating up on chalk dolls. I was like, oh wow. I
4: was
2: like, well, everyone deserves to win sometime. So I just
4: just started
2: talking that way and talking smack. And I was like, no, that's still cool. She's Chickasaw. Chickasaw, right? She's Chickasaw. Yeah. And so I was like, well, that's cool. You know, I was like,
3: A little banter. I
2: was like, all of our. I was like, even some of your Chickasaw players are playing with us here. So I was like, it's just just something is happening. I was like, that's good for the game. And then after that, we just kind of talked and talked. And she's like, hey, I'm going to Southeastern. And then there was like, oh, I was like, and then, then we actually started talking after that, just a little by little. I was like, you're not going to Southeastern. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well, and then we just started talking more. And then I was actually working over at cultural services then. And then, uh, I was going place to place and just, you know, send her little pictures in here of the places. I went to California I went to Oregon yeah, went to um, just almost all other states with the chief and those things. So she was kind of interested then. So I was interested when she was at school. So that's where we started, you know, dating. Then we actually started dating and hanging out more. And then soon after that, we were actually expecting our son. So <laughs> it just kind of <laughs> happened all pretty quick. and. <laughs>
3: Well, and speaking of, there was a challenging time once again in your life that actually led to creativity, right? Having to do with your son mm-hmm. and, and your wife.
2: Definitely. So again, to our little love story.
3: Yeah. You
2: know, being trying to be an adult and then trying to work full time, and um, I actually went back to college while was working full time. While she was going to school, and we had a you know a six month old, mm. and so she actually wanted to go and finish her undergrad at OSU. So, which is in Stillwater, which is probably, what, four hours, four and a half, maybe five mm-hmm. hours away from Durant. And so, I was working, I had just transferred out of cultural services and went to HR. I was the admin there, or an assistant, uh, an HR assistant. I was learning a lot of different things. I was getting paid a little bit more and actually was able to stay home. And with this decision, uh, this is what she wanted to do. And so, I kind of, like, I couldn't tell her no. And mm-hmm. so, I was like, well, I guess me and... Brandon going to stay here. And she's like, no, he needs his mom. And I was like, you don't leave me all by myself," And like, that's what it it's was. Rough. yeah. Yeah, and we just had to get an apartment. We've been in an apartment for about a year. And just make the move. And I was like, oh, what's, what's happening? And then she's like, I'm just going to go to school. I'm not leaving you. And I was yeah. Like, I got an abandonment issue. <laughs> I <was> just like, <laughs> no. Just hold me. I'm still trying to figure myself out. Uh, but yeah, she, she went there. And then, you know, I actually went up. Um, getting picked up to training and then I had a promotion after I graduated and actually moved to training. And so um, just filling in this void with my family gone and me going up there every weekend, it just got stressful. Yeah, um, She was trying to do things as an undergrad, but still be a mom. Uh, she had her sister there with her to help out with her son. So it kind of worked, it worked out. But the thing is though, during, you know, Monday through Thursday, it just got kind of lonely. It got kind of, you know, after work was over, didn't really have any close friends, but everyone that I worked with was just older than I was, which I was grateful for, because I learned a lot from them. Yeah. But then again, all my younger people, they were worked in cultural services, or in different areas, and they were gone every weekend, mm-hmm. or every week, and then I couldn't be where they were, so I just, like, kind of, like, I was felt like I was doing time, you yeah, know, where I just right. like, what can I do? So, I did get kind of upset I was feeling kind of depressed and and I think there was a Something with was southeastern and someone had asked to fix sticks or to buy new sticks and I was like I don't think I can make sticks so I don't have none of my tools here nor do I have tools then I didn't have tools at the end. Mm. I just had I just had a few things that were in my grandpa's garage that was all broken and rusted and yeah <laughs> and my dad and my family were in broken bow so like I either chose to go see my family or go see my my parents, my, my other family. And so, as either I was sacrificing one for another, whether if I was to expand or whether I was to be with my family, my own family. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I ended up saving money, and making money, and uh, taking care of my son's daycare. And man, working, I was grateful to have that new job. But then again, like all my money was just going to support them, to, to my family, right. to my son, and daycare. You know, then he was just almost a year old. He was
4: little.
2: Yeah, he was, or he was not. He's not almost a year. He was already a year old, probably going into two. I think He might been around right, two. But
4: mm-hmm.
2: daycare over there in Stillwater was like seven hundred a month. So I was like, geez, I could have bought someone's car. I could have bought my own house. You know, just right. Daycare <laughs> <And laughs> so, is so
4: expensive.
2: And I just got the new car too, which I was like, I was grateful. So just so I could make sure my car goes back and forth. That I had a dependable, dependable vehicle. Yeah. And so what how do I make up for the spending? And so um, uh, someone actually had bought sticks from me or wanted to buy sticks and um, they said, Yeah, whatever you you know would like or how much would it cost? And I was like, Well, make these sticks, you know, I said, like, It's gonna be this not much. So Alright, that's fine, give me four of them. And I'm like, What? <laughs> just oh my like,
3: goodness. <laughs> I was
2: like, All right, well I guess so I better get on that and so I did and and I was like, I don't have a place. Like I was actually so I'll send you some pictures that's where I first started.
4: Okay. I'd love to see and it.
2: then I recreated that type of environment outside here in Durant, my grandparents' backyard. Cool. And so when I was doing those things, it was just a lot of work, and I stayed out late. And then after that order was completed, I was like, there's got to be a better way to, to make these things. And I started watching how it's made and, you know, I started watching YouTube videos. I think I had finally gotten a YouTube subscription. And then I was just watching a lot of like how people do manufacturing stuff. So how can I, as a person, do those types of things into my format, my culture, or to, to Again, my hustling? Family. Yeah, came it's my a long line
3: of people who work hard. Got to
2: change the game a bit. And yeah. So I did. So I, I, I found my grandparents had a shed, and no one ever used the shed. It was just there whenever they bought it, and it was full of dirt. It had a lot of tires in there, and little critters were in there, and looked like they had done past <laughs> and whatnot, and. And so I was like, I just looked at it as, you know, an opportunity. And I I had to ask my grandparents first, like, you mind if I just turn that into a little working area? Yeah, go ahead. Because first of all, it's getting too cold to actually be outside because I was outside. I was literally outside working with a a board that I attached to a tree and shaving these um, staves into sticks outside. And so I was like, I just didn't want to be inside. I just don't want the cold breeze on I mean, because I'd be bundled up, pants, people sweaters. don't know it gets yeah. really
3: cold here in the winter, especially with the wind. When yeah, it blows.
2: it's just a weird place. And so I I started cleaning it up, and a lot of dirt, a lot of things, clean it out. And there's still some stuff that's in there that I finally cleaned out not too long ago. That was like, dang, that was here whenever they first moved here. I can't <laughs> believe I didn't miss that because I just cleaned enough area that was just for me to move around in and. I think I kept the dirt in there too, just so that it kind of helped insulated, you know, some of the area because there's no insulation. It was pretty much a hollow shell. But it was definitely better than being exposed to the wind. So when I, when I did that, I started to say, what else can I do and to actually help progress? And then I those four sticks or a pair of sticks became easier to make. Um, I started questioning, why do I have to make it this way? Why can't I still apply the same rule but do this? And
4: mm-hmm.
2: So over that year time, I actually... Dabbled in what I had. I was making good enough money to support, you know, daycares, to support my vehicle and all the things I needed. So I put little investments into maybe this business. And so, because a lot of people weren't making sticks here, Mm -hmm. especially Choctaw, Oklahoma or Oklahoma dolls, weren't making sticks. So our relatives in the city, they still make sticks because they have the knowledge and they have the resource. So here in Oklahoma, there's only literally a few people. And my dad and myself were only the only other two that I knew that were still making them in Oklahoma. The rest of them just forgot it or so died out mm-hmm. or never transitioned it to another generation. So I just felt prideful because that was one thing that I could do that I was getting better at. And so when I did that more often, I was just like, wow. And so from then, making a pair of sticks took me a long time. Well, I say a long time, like a week or two, for getting gets processing it, shaving it down, bending it. I could do it all within a day, but to actually make it dry. Yeah. Wow. To make it dry and make it to where I I was happy enough with it to actually get to a person, it took me about a week Mm -hmm. uh, to get to that, or a couple weeks to get to that stage. And that was like, you know, one to five pairs. Now, kind of fast forward, that drive, that hustle, I'm able to make 20 within a week.
3: Are you serious? Yeah,
2: if I actually spend my time doing it. I
3: thought one to five was pretty good. Yeah. So you've really learned how to streamline that process. Mm-hmm. And there's different components, obviously, that we'll talk about later, mm-hmm. about stick to the sticks and the and the ball itself. So it sounds like, is it that you're taking certain parts, you're like, okay, now we make all the net, now we make all the...
2: Yeah, it's pretty much, yeah, it's phases and phases.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so um, whenever I saw that I can make those things better, that's when I started investing more in that. So my drive to actually... Have that household to support my family but also it's been my time that loneliness or that yeah. depressive state i was taking that negative energy and putting it into something positive
4: love that and
2: so i loved it too and like i was so excited i would actually learn stuff at work that was work related and then towards the end of the day i was so excited to get to the house so i can actually do something productive as well because i was i was learning a lot of stuff you know they um Mentally, I was learning a lot of stuff like that was pertaining to the work, it was pertaining to training. I was getting like a, a lot of knowledge dumped into my mm-hmm. head, and then I needed to exercise that. So, the best way that I learned how to do exercise or move my hands was just with sticks. And so, I'd pick up logs, I would split them, I would do it by hand, and then I would start shaving by hand. I was getting a movement. I was like, I was growing. And so, I was having the best of two worlds in the, in a wave with that, and so I was being very productive at work, being very productive after work, spending time quick, tucker myself out, go to sleep, and do it all over again. And I was yeah. still like being correspondence with my, with my family, talk to them over the phone or see pictures. Except now
3: you're like, I-, I gotta go, I gotta go make some sticks.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Or before you're
3: like, can you please talk to me some more? <laughs> yeah, that's what
2: it was, and now it's like, hey. I got this going on. And then yeah, my wife,
3: purpose.
2: my wife, she's always like, well, why do not you, why do you always do that? You know, I'm like, I don't know. You know, just like, <laughs> but hey, so-
3: it's, if nothing else, it's bringing home more bacon too.
2: Yeah. I finally ended up told, telling her, I was like, it's just something about it that you know, I love doing. And like, she, she knows that I love doing it too. Yeah. And so that's why she kind of like sticks with me, you know, <laughs> to stick with it. <laughs> It's just like, you didn't need to do one or the other. It's because just, she's just like, you can't do both. I mean, you can do both, but it's just it definitely affects you. And I started saying yeah. that definitely in the last last couple of years. I was like, well, I had to choose which one uh, or yeah. choose seasons to actually do it.
3: Yeah, kind of figure out how to manage your time Yeah. And all that. So what, what does it mean to you as a Choctaw to be able to make these sticks?
2: It's definitely something that you uh, think about this every time whenever I make them. And sometimes I don't think about anything at all, but... I do reflect of where I learned this knowledge. This knowledge came from my dad. The knowledge that came from him was from my grandpa. And the knowledge that came from to my grandpa was from our uh, great-uncle, Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And from him, it was probably um, someone that was older. And so to me, when I was sort of making it, it's just kind of like I come from a family that has been cultural keepers for decades. And so I just felt like this is probably... At first, I felt like I was continuing uh, a phase or a step that my dad uh, was doing because that's all I remember growing up to make inmates to mm-hmm. make some sticks some people love sticks they wanted to see it as you know wall hangers some people want to use them it's just people just admire the arts yeah. and the versatility of it actually using it and so I just felt like I was just continuing his work in a way mm-hmm not did I find that I should make my own path in the way of doing it too. And then now of remembering and learning from him and then asking him questions and even asking grandpa questions and even my great uncles, which is my grandpa's brothers, you know, they actually give me little tidbits here and there. And it's Mm -hmm. like as a chalk out person to make these sticks it's just like it's it's empowering. It's it shows that a lot of people don't have the ability to do these things as chopped off people and as people in general, because not mm-hmm. a, a lot of people like doing the woodworking. People just rather buy something that's mass produced and it's for low quality. And some people don't understand just how things are made by hand. Everything's just so refined. Yeah. And so whenever I looked at making the sticks, I started understanding that things from nature, we embody it all the time. It's just in a refined state. And so I was just sitting there thinking, how cool and how interesting is it that you actually put your self-worth into something that's natural, that becomes something else, that's symbolic to years of transition, years of you know, hardship, and then to definitely for years of celebration and revitalization. And so I never saw myself as being that way until maybe the second or third year, whenever mm-hmm. I started doing it more often until I was like, I definitely need to be better at this because who am, who am I going to teach mm-hmm. to actually do this? Because that's, to me, that's probably the true fashion of how our understanding of oral traditions, of our knowledge, it has to be taught by somebody. And so I'm learning just so that I can pass it on to somebody else. And to me, I always felt like it was family oriented, you know, like... yeah. Um, when my son was born the first or second year i think he was probably 3 whenever pope had passed away and so my great grandfather's name's pope but Aww. his name's his name's ed right but <laughs> but he passed away but before he passed away uh him my grandpa my dad myself and my son there's five generations of billies
4: wow and
2: so that was something that we were all in our charter regalia it's just for wow. us and so like you don't get that too often and so I was just sitting there thinking, I was like, "Well, I need to be able to be efficient enough, but also learn the ins and outs, so that whenever it's have his time coming, that this is who is going to carry the fire, who's going Absolutely. to continue moving on." And then within the last recent years, sometimes I start feeling like that was kind of selfish, because why? Why am I just holding all this knowledge and
4: mm.
2: bearing all this stuff? Why can't I start to find people that can also have the same passion to actually do it themselves as well? And so I think in true, almost a Billy fashion, but in true, (laughs) my family's fashion is that, you know, we talk almost just about anyone and everyone. And what they brought from that or what they took from that is where they become implement in different parts of the nation or even in the states that relate or that pertain to um, anything that deals with Native American governments or tribes. Mm -hmm. It it gives them that perspective. And so uh, my grandfather, he started uh, with students in Brooklyn area, AILYC, which is American Indian Youth Leadership Council, and that was kind of the first NASA, if you will,
4: okay. that
2: we had in high school. But those individuals actually began to do something later on in their uh, lifetime, in work for the BIA or for other tribes that were not their own, but also about different perspectives, and actually became. Instrumental in things that were not only Trump Nation but other nations as well, mm-hmm. and so I thought that was pretty awesome. And that so, is
3: cool. I like that.
2: And so I, I started to see, you know, my, I, I guess my my passion was, or still is, making sticks, but now it's more of like, who's going to take my place? And mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people don't think that because yeah. we, we grew up in a, I would say we, but you know, myself, I grew up in a in a generation where it's like you'll never be Michael J or you'll be, never be LeBron or like, who's the next one that's going to be the big dog and whatnot. Right. And well, they also had to reply on, you know, Pippen and, you know, you have to have everybody else that's on the team. And so it's like, if I'm just one person and if I happen just to pass or have an accident and like all my progress is for nothing. I mean, it's just, True. it'll just be told as a story and that's where it'll stay. And so that's where I started seeing more of like, well, when I'm gone, you know, who will be doing that? So that's a lot of recording, mm-hmm. a lot of pictures, even just mapping things out and then trying to teach people more about how to do this. So when I reflect, let's talk to a person, whenever we talk about stickball, making it, it, it's all those embodiments of, you know, past to the present and to where we're going to the future. Mm-hmm. All those aspects of, I guess you carry that definitely with you whenever you, whenever I carry that with me, whenever I start making those sticks and uh saying that I can do this but I also can do other things as well. So I think that's just kind of my little vision definitely to um that I think over and over again whenever I make them that I I am able to do this. Do something that's not normal or I don't say normal but it's not (laughs) it's not popular.
3: Right. To make it. it's It's a very rare narrow niche.
2: It is. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Uh within the last probably four years uh there's been some makers come about, actually, not only in Choctaw, but also Chickasaw. So I have some friends in the Aida area that are actually that are Chickasaw stickball makers, who we all learn from this almost similar people in different perspectives, in different areas. And so um, with the with Justice Gaggs, with uh, Lacrosse, Lecra- uh, uh, he actually did a little um, series over us, and he actually kind of gave us a little platform. It just shows a different variety of individual people that where they come from, what they make. Mm -hmm. And I I just absolutely love that. Because even though we have a similarity, we're all still so different, too, (laughs) which is pretty cool. Yeah. But I think overall, that's pretty much my thinking of how it means to me as a stickball person and maker and as a chalkball person. Mm -hmm. It just kind of comes in full circle in a way.
3: Well said. That's impressive, (laughs) <laughs> but what a great story of turning a rough time into something beautiful. And you're lucky in that you get to use your talents in your career with the Choctaw Nation, right?
2: Yes. And so, um, so currently I work for the Choctaw uh, Cultural Center. Okay. And so it is a tier in the cultural services realm. Um, cultural services has historic preservation and cultural events in the cultural center. I'm definitely elated to come back. Uh, to be part of the nation, it's just like, just coming back home, you know? Yeah. And definitely here, being in the Durant area, we're able to make those impacts. And even when I worked in training, it was, it was just the way that I understood that HQ was being built. I mean, the headquarters was being built, and then, like, the expansion, and then other things. Like, it, this is a point in Choctaw Country where it gets a lot of exposure. And I felt like it was definitely a good opportunity to be here, but also I I correlate it coming from home. Mm-hmm. And so everything that I do I relate it to my home. Because some people think this town is Choctaw Nation. That's not it. Ten and a half counties is southeast of Oklahoma, that is chalked all country. That is Choctaw All Nation. Point. And so let think of it as a mosaic. You know, we all have our particular pieces and that we fit and that makes this beautiful artwork. Hmm. That is us as, as a nation. So these, Love that. Yeah, I've probably said this a couple times or two. So. Oh,
3: you must have it came, it came out very naturally. Yeah, Good
2: job. It is, uh, but I mean that's how I felt and that's how I see it yeah. too. To where you know, without without my district or without my home area, I wouldn't be who I am mm-hmm. and wouldn't be where I'm what I'm doing here in the nation. So I I'd always pay respect and honor to where I come from, that particular district. And so working here at the cultural center. I'm able to put every aspect that I learned within HR, within training, from language, even prior cultural services, and into putting it into the center where it's now a staple to where we're able to have our guests come see us instead of us going to see them. We're right. Not an outreach. We're, we are a area where you come to get this knowledge, this exposure. Hmm. And you don't get it in the first try. That's what's interesting. Huh. Every individual can spend... You know, probably two to four hours, you know, and the next day when they come spend maybe an hour or so, they probably see something they didn't see the first time. And so it's just so much saturated there with just the facility itself. But then adding our programming, adding our educational stuff, there's like things that we pull from historic preservation, things that we pull from cultural events. There's a lot of things that people just cannot take in just one day or even one weekend.
3: Well, thank you for sharing about your world. Your, your, <laughs> I love your love story of stickball, both the sticks themselves and your wife that you met playing the game. Um, so let's dig into our topic today, the fiercest and oldest game in the country, stickball. From where did stickball originate and how does it relate to lacrosse as we know it today?
2: So it's to my understanding that stickball has always been here or it's the hmm and as it relates to the cross across this country, all tribes have played field games. Okay. Uh, whether they have the physical aspects of putting a ball through a hoop or having contact with a particular pole or even just like odds or chance in a way. There's always been this interaction that our native peoples have done to kind of pass time, but also develop skill. And so for stickball specifically, we, as Choctaw people, our ancestors used it as a way of an alternative to war. And so without having, you know, too much bloodshed of actually going into war, whenever they could not come to a reasonable level grounds in council, then they would actually put this into the area. And so again, people think of, oh, you didn't like it, and so you just... Played over, game over. Well, that's not totally true. There's actually a lot of uh, politics that go with it then.
4: Mm-hmm. So
2: you kind of have to think about what did America get their politics from?
4: Good point. And
2: so that's where that formality, because if you, if you talk about European history itself, you actually have kingship, you have royalty, which mm-hmm. they're still doing it across the pond today. And so whenever you look at the freedom of America, where it's a spike from the French, But the actual representatives actually had a model, too, here in the indigenous peoples. And so for us um, as Choctaw, our indigenous ways of politics, if it didn't come to a common ground, then it was to have this way of war. Little brother war, specifically. And that's where Choctaw, the name Choctaw Ishtaboli comes into play. Now, Ishtaboli actually means, like, to hit a playing field that is for hitting and specifically, it means talk about the sticks and the ball.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, kapocha, toli is actually the sticks. Uh, kapocha is what we call the sticks, and toli is like an actionable thing of saying, let's go play it or let's go do it, that action. Okay. It's both similar to each other. Like the Mississippi Chalkals, uh, they actually say kapocha instead of kapocha. So it's a P versus a B. Mm-hmm. So here we actually have this staple sports as we now know today but back then it was a way of warfare and so the victor actually would earn the honor of the opposing you know tribe or district and there this the settled dispute would play out and where you wouldn't say that the Chalkos are conquering other tribes they were just trying to say this is a resource or jurisdiction now some will say you will conquer or you have conquered other tribes in some some instances there's some uh, stories have been told that but overall, it was just a way of handling those types of things when no one came to a conclusion.
3: I love that you said it, it was an alternative to war. So I'm thinking, why don't we just globally introduce stickball to everybody so that maybe we can solve the <laughs> world wars and we can all have peace. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if Native Americans want everybody playing their game, but, you know, maybe it's an alternative. One
2: well, thing is, though, with... all right now we're into kind of like for. Some people talk about the spirituality of the game itself. Mm-hmm. Um, to actually have the honor of being a victor, but also having the respect as uh, the defeated—that was still it. You had to have the honor and respect to actually become the victor, but also to play, mm. you know, the, the defeated as well. Because that's where it made it work. Because wow. if you were too prideful or too greedy to actually, you know, stab you in the back once you walked away as a victor. That is kind of like one of man's imperfections as human Uh, beings. And so this dispute was kind of that spirituality realm more like this is where it's played fair and done. If a tribe did actually, you know, dishonored that and actually still done stuff uh, to actually portray, you know, not listening to the victor or whatever, if they tainted that, then they would go to war. And then they would, you know, maul to whatever because it, it was a way of saying you disrespected the law. Yeah. And so that's where um, a lot of talked about people and a lot of people in the Southeast areas didn't kill each other off the face of the earth, but there were some that did not, uh, that if they neglected that law, then they would, you would see that in their population. Wow. So,
3: so interesting.
2: And so, also say until and now, as we relate it to lacrosse,
3: mm-hmm.
2: lacrosse in the northern regions, like the Algonquins the uh, Onondagas, a lot of tribes up there, there's also variations of lacrosse itself too, mm-hmm. like the Shawnee, and uh, they actually play with a different style of one stick. Oh, really? And, and then the Pot- Potawatomi themselves, they actually play a different variation with one stick as well. And then as your, you know, Iroquoian or algonquin style, uh, with the big netted like a huge seven a stick that looks like a huge seven and with a big netting that was um, the actual game for lacrosse and its variation mm-hmm. and then they call it the medicine game and some of the um, information that I've seen in the videos that I've watched that it was a game that was built by the creator for his amusement or his understanding of which people is uh, worthy of or what have you and the people standpoint call it the medicine game. And so Mm -hmm. if you think about it as practicing and playing it as well, it does cleanse you. It does give you that medicine that you need. And so today, whenever we play stickball as a sport, you're still providing that mentality of like competition, but Mm -hmm. you're also supplementing like peace of exerting your body to actually cleanse the body physically, to clear the mind mentally, and then to kind of Keep yourself in check spiritually not to have anger or any kind of intentional hurts physically or even emotionally to people. it's just a way of caring oneself and actually leaving it behind and not caring it continuing throughout your day so that's kind of like um how we see that perceived today that's my understanding of how some people will see that as a medicine game in the northern regions and then how we're trying to kind of explain that in a way today Mm -hmm. uh, with stickball down here, but more so it's about competition. But that's my understanding with the medicine games itself. Mm -hmm. And so I like that that correlation there. And so whenever I tell people here about stickball, it's got that same relativeness, but it also goes a little bit more deeper to saying that for war, you have, you're protecting something. You're Mm -hmm. not just to take over this nation just for the fun of it. There's no, there should be no greed within reason there needs to be a way of giving and taking.
4: Mm-hmm. And no
2: would say like all indigenous peoples were perfect, that they had their flaws themselves, but overall it was not to, to extinguish life, but it's different to progress it, promote it. And so whenever we say it in that manner, our warriors or our Tuska, they were brothers, there were fathers, there were sons, nephews, and uncles, and later on to be grandpas, but they all were protecting their families. Hmm. That's like how you think of people leaving to go have a better opportunity, is whether I put my life on the line to actually see for that this next generation will be able to live and carry the same value, better than the life that it's in now. And so that understanding of being a servant is where our people come from Hmm. to actually to serve, not as people think as like servants and a butler, but more servants for like, you know, like, I'll do this for you because you need it. Or Mm -hmm. uh, I see a need, I must serve to that need. And so our tribe kind of reflects that, too, with servant leadership, as Chief Batten has. Yes. That's where you see something, say something, you know, or you... If it's not your job, you know, you can still do it. And to me, that's what I remember growing up, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why we had to go to my auntie's house all the time, you know, or why we had to go <laughs> over here. But it's because they needed help, whether it was with the with their house or something with the family. You know, sometimes it was money. And sometimes it was about fixing their vehicle. Mm-hmm. Is um, Later on, as I went to Central, I actually worked with Dr. Ketchum, and he had uh, a big... You know, iti thabasa, that was, well, iti are what we use in the nation, but he was very big on iikoi.
4: Hmm.
2: Iikoi is kind of like a broken foot, a broken ankle. And what this means is, or the story behind this broken ankle is that this individual, I think it was an older lady, or this old mother, old, old grandmother, she was trying to attend to her crops in her household while all of her family had passed away, some moved away. And this is like in a setting in the like, or late 1700s, 1800s. And so with this individual, she breaks her ankle. And so it is, she can't tend to her crops, she can't clean her house, or she can't do things that she needs to do to progress her life there. And it's understood that the people kind of helped serve. They you know, moved her crops, picked her crops, helped her house, and did that as... Not to say that's your problem, but it's saying that we as a community take care of you as well. And mm-hmm. it's, like I, like I said, giving and receiving. And so that kind of, as I talked to my grandfather, it's like that's also kind of biblical or spiritual too. Mm-hmm. It's a, also one of those kind of laws as well. He is very big on that aspect. And so I thought that as well, whenever you see a lot of these warriors like go and just throw their lives on the line. And even today, for the men and women that put their lives on the line for freedom for America... And so that's where you start to see people serve. And so you know, evidently they call it service. And so they had just different tiers. And so whenever I saw, you know, started doing a lot more research about why these people were playing and how the people actually fought in these battles, they were actually serving their people, whether they didn't want them to be a part of it or whether they wanted to have a better standpoint. And so that's where I understand our warriors weren't just like these soldiers that were on their high horse yeah. they're also down working in the crop fields they're also certain leadership if not they had more responsibilities too wow and then they are able to how you would just say that um cleanse themselves as well with actually if they had to go to war there's a way that they used to actually erase or not erase, but actually work
4: mm-hmm. that's
2: um, taking a life yeah and so that's where we get that understanding. The women were considered as the givers of life, and then the men became the takers of life, not mm-hmm. only in war and battle, but also yeah. in hunting and fishing. And so there were those roles, those were those things, in the spirituality that's roots deeper than what we know right now. And so, like, PTSD, you have that today with a lot of people who are in poverty, people who are going to service mm-hmm. from the war, have nothing left. Well, back then, my grandpa would always tell me that they actually worked those things those spiritualities those mentalities they talked about those things and they actually move again that negative energy into a positive state and so that's where you see a lot of suicide and things of that nature because a lot of people were helping each other there's if someone was hurt in a way then the community always was to carry you so mm-hmm. that, that understanding of family even though what your blood family is more your community. But today we kind of lost a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. We kind of stray far from the stuff, and me as a uh, first person that I strayed, a full, strayed away from that too. So it's like mm-hmm. again full circle to coming to realization and probably even maturity that you understand where you serve and where where I come from and where you come from. It's where what we do today that can impact the people tomorrow. So I definitely like seeing you know how this correlates to, to stickball itself to the warriorship. And to how the medicine that the Conquins and to the Onondagas that is about their cleanses is not just a um, sport. There's a much more meaning that's, you know, through our lens as indigenous people, that it it pertains to a much deeper meaning. And they're from a mainstream society, all they're just playing ball. Right. So that definitely, you had to understand what's, how it's pertaining to the people and not to what their actions from a far distance.
3: I'm glad you explained that because when you observe the game or so-called game and we are watching everyone play, it seems so hardcore, but it makes so much more sense as to why it might seem so aggressive in a really good way because it, there's some spirituality behind it. There's that warrior feeling behind it. So thank you for sharing that with us so we can have that better perspective. You know, my, um, my sisters and I and my niece and my daughter, we all took some lessons from um, a gentleman you probably know. um, And we took some stickball lessons, and the whole time we were just always focused on just technique. (laughs) And, you know, at some point you get to, you know, you practice so much that we never got to pass the technique part. But I would think once you played it so long and, and you're used to it and you're understanding how it all works, then you can start really, like, bringing in that hey why are we doing this and ancestors before us and centuries before we're doing this to settle disputes avoid war also doing it for spiritual reasons and but i'm a terrible stickball player i will say that i will never be able to play you or your wife but (laughs) it's such a great it's such a great experience
0: i want to talk a bit about stickball of the old days since it has changed some i mean People used to die in the games of yesteryear, so it has definitely morphed in some ways, but overall it's impressive that the game has stayed mostly true to the original form. So I'll paint a picture of stickball in years past. Before the game, the opposing tribes would try to come to the terms of the game, but if they couldn't come to terms, they would go to battle. So if and when all terms were agreed upon the night before, the tribes would perform similar rituals to their pre-war ceremonies consisting of wearing regalia, dancing, singing, sacrifices, and calling to the spirits for help. The goal of the ceremonies also being to intimidate their rivals. Medicine men would bless the game, the sticks, and the players, giving them scratches that were said to make the blood flow freely for the game, which would lead to a win. The players would paint their bodies with charcoal and paint and would also decorate their sticks, and they'd limit their diet as well in preparation and drink Spanish tea that was made up of the tree bark from red oak trees, and they'd work themselves up by not eating and sleeping so that they'd be full of rage by the time the game started. Each player would also place a wager to put up such as wives, children, horses, knives, and more. Yep, you heard that right about the wives and children. I suppose if you hated your wife or maybe you had a kid you didn't like so much, you could maybe hope that you lost, I guess. (laughs) So the items bet upon would be awarded to the winners every quarter throughout the game. Anywhere from 100 to 1,000 men from opposing tribes came together, screaming their war cries and ready to play their best in hopes of winning for the tribe. And off they went, full force, no rules, and the spirits on their side. There were no referees. Trees or rocks were used as goals, and they were allowed to hit their opponents with their sticks. All players played for the duration of the game, which would last for days, usually from morning until sundown. Even in 1937, there's an account of an eyewitness named Frank Grawl, who was interviewed from Wewoka, Oklahoma, saying, But when the first fellow got the ball, some player hit him over the head with a club, peeling the skin until it hung over his ear. The battle was so fierce that when the game was ended and one side had been chased from the ground, the pool was perfectly bloody. The pool he's talking about is where the women would pull the men from the game and place them in pools of water to try to get them to regain consciousness. He then said, this was the last Indian ball game played in such a brutal manner for the government took notice of such brutality and sent deputy marshals to the games to prevent such cruelty. At this game, I saw players bite one another. Wow. So let's talk about the
3: equipment. As mentioned earlier, there are two sticks, a ball and a pole. What are the sticks made of?
2: So yeah, the sticks—they're actually made of hickory. That is a kind of the traditional resource. Uh, a long time ago, like the hundreds of years to the 1000 they they're actually made of like smaller trees, like saplings. Okay. But today, with you know more man-made tools that can help process better, we're able to get bigger trees and cleaner wood. But even the style of the stick themselves from then to now is changed drastically even within the time from now and even to the 1930s to the 70s the sticks themselves have changed in somewhat design because Mm. of resource shortage and tool like don't know what have you certain tools and so um almost incompetence but (laughs) yeah (laughs) pretty much that too yeah um, our
3: ancestors are looking at us going, really? Oh, That's what you're using? Oh, like a machine. <laughs> like
2: How do you tell someone to use a table saw who's never seen a table saw before?
3: Right. No, I think yeah. I think our ancestors are probably very proud of what you're doing. Yeah.
2: Thank you. <laughs> but definitely with that, you see two sticks and a ball. The sticks themselves, they are extensions of your hand. And the ball itself is close enough to the size of a golf ball. Uh, we'll say probably a quarter of an inch thicker than a ball golf ball itself but the objectives that actually have the ball hit a post that's four by four by 12 foot tall and you're able to hit this post 360 degrees hmm. mind you that this post is actually mirrored by another post and today we play on a football field so think of it as at the 5 yard line or a goal line to the other goal line and we played whole fields, not just the uh, cut of marks by marking, but the whole field that that's it. That's can...
3: got to be exhausting.
2: Yes, and we played thirty on thirty. But I'm sorry, back to the sticks though. The sticks themselves, again, they're made out of hickory, and that's traditionally the resource that was found and used. Just because whenever it's green, it's able to be flexible. Actually, mm. all wood is flexible when whenever it's freshly cut. Mm. Um, because it has life still in it, there's uh, that moisture, there's that ability to sculpt and craft it. And so other trees uh, or other hardwoods were used as well. Ash, oak, and then recently I started to see some made out of boat art. You can use some other stuff that grows near the waterways that actually produce more like moisture-carrying carry or moisture bearing woods Mm -hmm. that actually would make it more flexible because it's saturated with that. And if you apply the heat, you can actually bend it.
3: What do you think they were using in uh, Mississippi back in the day?
2: So back in the day, they were uh, using stone tools. You can actually use a stone blade to actually uh, what they call compression. Instead of like here, you have axes, you're actually cutting Mm-hmm. And so to actually cut down a tree, you actually use a um, stone that actually is not a fine point, but it's got its heaviness. It actually compresses and chews away, uh, like, a, like a beaver almost, mm-hmm. chews away that type of tree uh, stalk. Until to actually split it, you would actually find a difference, either a shell or even a finer blade that actually like wedge through. And then once you start to wedge through, if you're able to have leverage, you can actually split a tree in half. Hmm. I do it all the time with yeah. with uh, with uh, metal tools, and so it's funny how like you see the makeup of like natural things. It's it's all about splitting, and so moving things, um, twisting things, and splitting things. You're able to make these things move naturally. So you would have uh, stone tools, uh, even some shell, and you know wooden mallets or limbs, all those things can help shave down and actually bend um, or shave down to a stage where you can bend these trees to actually make those bigger sticks then. And today, where you versus metal, metal is more refined and it can be sharper. You can actually cut through, but their knowledge of then, of falling grain, is where we kind of fall off today. Hmm. And so whenever you're able to split, that's when I was talking about splitting, you actually yes. follow those links, the, um, the rings. Yeah. So when you yeah. split one in half, you can actually pull it apart. And if you follow, uh, some of those rings, you can actually find it and you can move with it. You can actually bend the stick with it. Hmm. This makes it show. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is, uh, it's probably about a decade of knowledge trying to throw it all with them.
3: Right. Well, especially like, you didn't just learn from YouTube, you also learned from your your family, yeah, who have been doing it for a long time, too.
2: I just told this is how you do it, this is why I never understood the like mechanics nor mm. the, the specifics. And so, until I got older and asking questions, and
4: yeah,
2: YouTubing and Googling, and just like, what does that mean, you know? And then there's people that woodworkers that have all this knowledge from a long time ago just don't apply it into this format of stick making.
3: Well, and can you imagine what people were doing before, say, YouTube or whatever, and there was an even narrower amount of people making them just because it probably stayed in their little
2: yeah, group. Just, yeah.
3: Yeah. Just making it there and that was it.
2: Yeah. Like we're making it over here, but I don't know what y'all making over there. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So, yeah. So the sticks are made out of hickory, bent by using steam. Today they're probably bent by steam or um, some of you probably heats uh, over an open fire like your ancestors did, or you can even do it in a um, like heat gun. I started recently doing what our ancestors did, which was actually having it over an open fire and dousing it with oil. Really? Um, this helps it kind of protect it some from charring as much, and but also it's a lot faster than, to me, it's a lot faster than steam because it helps it set as well.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, that's where we're able to bend the stick itself and shave it or uh, use a blade to actually chip away into a handle form and then...
4: Mm-hmm. And what
2: the ancients would have done was actually compressed or what they call bone. And so what that means is that you get an antler or an animal, a femur or some big animal, and you actually would compress it or a stone. You get yeah. a stone, <laughs> and then you would actually rub that onto the to the wood itself, and there the wood wow. actually compresses.
3: Well, have you ever thought about like doing it the old way, trying one time to do it? It would probably take like five years to make a stick,
2: but <laughs> probably not. But. I, I, I do I want to. I need a to.
3: femur? And.
2: I did actually do want to do that. Like legit stone tools. Be awesome. The thing is, though, you have to make those tools too. Right. So sure. I was like, I don't know that knowledge. Like, I don't know. Do I just find a rock that I find on the side of the road? Yeah. <laughs> because there's different rocks for different things. And so like, yeah. Like granite. You know, granite's pretty hard, but the stone they used in ceremonial axes were like greenstone. Hmm. You can't find greenstone unless, unless you're talking about jade. But jade's not as sturdy or heavy-duty like this greenstone that they found in Mount oh. the mountain area. And that's where you get that whole thing of like ancient aliens, like how they cut this stuff. <laughs> yeah, know?
3: they do that. Yeah. Stonehenge and all Yeah, the right? We'll find you working on it like for 20 years. Your beard will all be grown out and your hair. <laughs> Why did I ever start this project? That's my
2: own independent study there.
3: <laughs> exactly. And so the <laughs> end of the stick is like a basket or, or webbing or something, right?
2: Yes. So to hold the ball. It's kind of like a, um, a hoop or a... Yeah, so it's, it's actually one long stick and then you actually make a kind of a question mark. Okay. But it closes. Mm-hmm. And so whenever it closes... You can actually start to render or fade before it bends. And once it bends, you actually meet two ends together. So you have a nice teardrop-looking cup.
4: Okay. Some
2: people call it a basket. Some people call it a cup. It's different for everyone else. But for me, I, I like using the term uh, cup. Okay. And so the cup itself, just because it's got that you know, teardrop look, you can actually flare it. You can actually make it open up like a flower. And so the flare... It actually helps with picking up the ball off the ground and catching it midair. Then within inside the webbing itself, we, we don't necessarily do the ancients way of webbing it anymore. We just kind of do a simple cross. Okay. Uh, there's one, one direct strand that goes through a hole to the stick or to the cup. And what they would do is they would actually kind of grind it with a stone or with a shell. And then some say that they would actually put a uh, ash or a coal on it to actually singe off the uh, ruptured uh,
4: okay. drilling
2: in which I kind of still do the same thing today where I can pilot a hole but I also just poke a hot nail a hot piece of metal just through it okay.
4: so this doesn't
2: doesn't reflect on splitting anymore it's actually just burnt off it makes sense to me but I don't know if it you know really tells but it looks good too yeah and you can always smell the smoke from it too even when it's done that's,
3: that's kind of cool though
2: it is yeah um so you have one hole at the very top, and then you have two two holes on each side, which is pretty symmetrical. You know, it looks mm-hmm. like a plus sign or a cross. Yeah. And uh, we actually wrap the leather or whatever kind of cordage you're using uh, around and outside the cup, and then you actually um, pull the one that's on the very top over the one that's going across, and you tie that off at the base of the cup area where it met each other. Mm-hmm. And so, um, once you do that, then you kind of halfway done the wrapping of the one that goes from side to side, and you use that leather to actually wrap rounds to actually give it a second layer on the one that's going across. But yeah. You also bind the one that's going up and down across it. So you actually see this, you know, cross uh, cup. And so this, this actually helps us uh, pick up the ball because that top piece of leather. Or strand, whatever it is you're using, is at an angle. So when the angle catches the ball, it's able to not directly put all the weight into one area, like a, like a basket.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: It's actually to mm-hmm. deflect pressure into the seats of the cut, kind of really? across. But with us having two sticks, it actually's caught and then supported mm-hmm. by the other one. So it's like, you know, two hands. You have better control whenever you have two hands to catch something. Yes. And so the other cup is the mirror image. Um, It has the same type of webbing, but the size may be different. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they say different sizes is because uh, some will understand that the old story that actually from March of that, I remember hearing the story from Olin, Olin Williams was saying that, you know, the bigger stick was considered as the father and the little stick was considered as the mother. Really. And the ball is considered as the baby. And so whenever the ball is scooped up the mother will always be there to pick up the baby or the child mm-hmm. and then whenever in like throwing motion whenever the ball is ready the father cup or father stick will be able to progress it on or transition it on. and that's as it, beautiful and as as it's in this you know motion whenever the father stick's about to you know throw it it's also showing that the mother stick is always, is always going to protect the baby or the ball itself or whenever, however long time needed, yeah, and so it, it's a family unit type of deal to where you have both of them together. So, as kids, you understand that a lot more than,
4: yeah,
2: one stick. Yeah, that, that's just one variation. I may mean, not told mm-hmm. it verbatim what Olin said, but I, that's kind of how I feel. I understand I'm something like that. And I even talked asked Olin before, I was like, Hey, how's that go? and I told him, like, just what I just kind of told you, he's like, That's a good version of it. <laughs> I was like, wow, wow, it'll do. I know I was <laughs> Pretty like, okay. good.
3: I like that. That's actually very lovely.
2: And then the ball itself, um, they used to use a hickory nuts mm-hmm. or a clay ball, or sometimes a stone. And then if it's a small stone, they will actually wrap other types of fabric.
3: I was gonna say getting hit in the head with those would hurt. It'll
2: hurt. It does hurt too. <laughs> um, they would use a something to kind of give it a a weight, and sometimes the weights varied depending on the maker. And, and this is what I've told some of my staff is that, you know, from what we learned throughout these uh, past decade and a half is that they use different materials for a holistic standpoint. So, like, they actually observe and see how things in nature moved around. And so, like, there's a story about a person actually uh, capturing a flea mm-hmm. and then putting that flea inside this core of this ball and then stitched it like you know, a normal baseball, or kind of like a baseball, because it's what they used to look like a long time ago. Right. Like a baseball. It's like a uh, material wrapped around this core and stitched. Well, until later on, uh, around after European contact, that they actually started playing with a woven ball that looked symbolic or similar to like how the basket is woven. Mm. It lasts a lot longer, and they used to actually have these long tails to actually mm. put on the end of them, so whenever they saw it, they can actually see where it went. But then today, uh, since we don't play like outside normally uh, in wild terrain, it's more of a in a platform that's more like sure. a sport. Uh, and we play at night now, and then we have you know lights like Friday night lights, you know, mm-hmm. and field lights to see something that's reflective. We use a like, highlight orange paint, so we actually paint okay. them all the day, just so that you can see it more vibrant. Not just for the players, but also for the people in the stands. Yeah. Because if you don't have a trained eye for it, then you'll miss it. Oh,
3: totally. It's so small.
2: Definitely. And how small is it? Uh, it, Typically, Like I said, it's probably close to a quarter of an inch thicker than a golf ball. Okay. So in diameter size. So half half, an eighth of an inch on each area of the ball.
3: And so you talked earlier about the poles Mm -hmm. and that they're on either end of the field. And players use their sticks to pick up the ball and then they try to throw it at the pole, right?
2: Yes. So the pole today is a 4 by 4 post, so 4 inches by 4 inches on all sides and 12 foot tall. The objective is to actually have that ball hit that post. Um, if you're talking about the time when the ancients played in the it's the bully time, it was more of like a post and lentil uh, type of deal where it was they would find these skinny trees and they would actually bind them together until it makes a big like hockey goal. Ah. But it was like 15 foot to 20 foot tall mm-hmm. and it was binded at to the top. And so it's like a window, like a gate almost. And you had to have that ball thrown in that gate.
4: Okay. Yeah.
2: So mind you, this is a lot easier goal, a lot easier thing to do. And you either mm-hmm. had the ball thrown in there or you had the ball in the sticks and you ran through that gate. Okay. It's a lot easier compared to this 4 by 4 post today. But then, mind you, you had hundreds of thousands of people playing back then. True. And then they used to hit each other with the sticks and then wrestle, kind of like wrestle or fought on the field, so to make you lose possession of the ball. Today, we don't do all that. Uh, today, what we do do is that we still tackle, we still do a little bit of wrapping up, but making this a miniature version of what our ancestors done, we amped up the skill to actually have that ball hit the post. Gotcha. And so, the actual sound of hitting that is called knock, beat. and so it's just kind of like a you know, kind yeah. of thing, and so we made the poles today to sound hollow just so that whenever it hits it, you can hear that.
3: Okay. Cause some people That's will
2: say, Oh, he hit it. You know, and it just like barely missed the millimeter. Yeah. And some people like, didn't hear the knock. You didn't hear it. Yeah. It's kind of like your current bell, you know, like when the hockey's hit yeah. and the siren goes off or the bell goes off kind of the same aspect.
3: And so when they do hit the pole, there's points that are made, right?
2: Yeah. So after each contact, the ball to the pole, is one point and only one points and then some people can actually have the ball in the sticks while the player has possession of the sticks and actually tap the poe okay and that will actually be a point too but today that's kind of harder to do because um, a lot more people are ready for it just because once you have possession and you're trying to get into your uh, defenses territory you know, you're immediately the one to be tackled so it's best mm-hmm. to actually <laughs> shoot it right yeah there's strategic plans that you can actually set your defense and offense up to actually move around to actually either shoot it closely or tap it
4: mm-hmm. today
2: it's very it's a lot harder to tap it because you have to hit the post make it noticeable that you hit the post with mm-hmm. the sticks in the ball And then you still have to keep possession of the ball after you had tapped it for over two or three seconds.
3: There's so much skill involved in this game. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that people that are really into sports, like, you know, let's say you're a football player or you love watching football or whatever. Mm -hmm. Go try to play this game, (laughs) you know, or if you're a lacrosse player, even better. I mean, obviously they can already. Have you played lacrosse players before?
2: Um, I have not. Uh, Well,
3: I've just always wondered if they have, you know,
2: they won't get to
3: it a little more easier than some
2: people would. Actually, they do because they had they grasp the concept. Uh, we actually did have some across players come. I think when I was still in high school, they just stopping by and they was like, "What are y'all doing?" And it was like towards the end of the day, it was getting close to sundown, and we were playing them, and they were so used to using one stick, that yeah, they could <laughs> cradle. That's what they call it, cradling. Mm-hmm. And they actually cradle a ball. They do this thing, yeah, a whole lot better than we could. But the thing is that whenever they threw it, they were so used to you know, swinging it, and they actually would just be. Over, they actually shoot over the post, mm-hmm. and then they had to. Someone actually scooted far away, and actually when they threw it, because it's a lot lighter ball and it's a lot shorter stick. Yeah, and so uh, I actually seen one lacrosse player and actually throw it like from half court or halfway, wherever that was, and actually hit the post. And it was like very dark. It's like that was his oh. luck, but they still had, <laughs> you know, the ability to fling it. Other than that, their control of like hitting each other with a stick, we had to kind of roll, take that away from them because you couldn't check nobody. Yeah. (laughs) And then um, we had to apply the actual physicalness of that was tackling. So if you had the ball, you were to be tackled. And then lacrosse, you can't tackle.
4: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: You can throw a shoulder or whatever, but you can't actually wrap somebody up. Yeah. So that's where we kind of. Dominate a little bit on our little field uh, when I was when we were in high school because they weren't ready for being physical contact without any padding on.
3: I wonder if they walked away going, "That's a lot harder of a game than what <laughs> we play." Even though lacrosse is not easy, but
2: yeah,
3: it's crazy. So, do they, do you play for points or for time?
2: Today we play for time. Uh, well, actually, points too.
3: So whoever gets the most points wins, right?
2: Yes. So whenever you get the most points, wins. Today, we actually put a time restriction on there. It's a four 15-minute quarters. Okay. A two-minute break between like the first and second quarter and third and fourth quarter, and a five-minute halftime.
3: I didn't realize it was that quick, even though, I mean, I'm sure you're dead by the end <laughs> yeah. of it, how grueling it is. But.
2: It's, it's a lot faster, uh, definitely, when you're playing, but then whenever you're a spectator, uh, watching, like, how long do they keep going? The thing is, though, to have a good roster of people to actually supply, uh, supplement you while you're mm. uh, going in and out. Um, yeah. Because there's no official, like, go in or go out and call it as you see it. and uh, Some players will, like, raise their sticks up to actually go off the field, and someone immediately comes and replaces them. There's some That would type. be
3: after me after, like, three minutes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and it definitely sucks when you don't have no one to replace you, too. And I've also played <laughs> in those bet. games, too, where it's like... <laughs> I'm just watching this ball go by and see who gets it, you know? Just, <laughs> there's also points, too. So, like, today in the World Series of stickball, uh, they do actually have a mercy rule, which they started implementing that probably since um, <laughs> Oklahoma Choctaw started playing because you know, we didn't have a lot of skilled people. We had a lot of people that were skilled in tackling. Yeah. But not a lot of people skilled in picking and catching up the ball. the
3: Mississippi Choctaw have been doing it a lot longer,
2: right? Yes, yeah, a lot more. We're all dormant, definitely, within this game of stickball. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were coming to rise around officially and on this bigger platform in the 70s. Mm. But for us as Oklahoma Chartos, we didn't get a lot of speed until the ninety I would say, five or mm-hmm. four. Around the same time, the 70s, uh, when Mississippi players were actually doing this tournament style, they were having a lot more people involved. For us in Oklahoma, we only did it as an exhibition, as a way mm-hmm. of saying. It's what we do. Is what does anyone come play. It's learning moment. Yeah. So it wasn't really a competition. Cool. It was more of like a you're involved. This yeah. This is like our little step to do before we get to that level. And they were doing that. When I say they, I mean, my grandparents, they were doing that in Tashkohoma during Labor Day Festival. And it wasn't until, I think, when I remember, till the 90s that we still had it. And we had some Mississippi people come and they played. And, you know, they'll come here and a lot more a lot earlier than the recent 2000s time Mm -hmm. and so our chickasaw relatives they played as well but they would play with us more so and then when their festivals started getting bigger and bigger they started hosting their own too, exhibitions and then um they were just starting out when i remember around 2000 that they were actually kind of trying to unify more of a chickasaw totally or chakasha and they always had a good outing uh, during the festival times but whenever um on their festival time, whenever they came to us, we didn't really had hardly any of them. We probably had probably about ten or so mm-hmm. that would show up, and just because they loved to play. But again, sticks were very scarce. There were some makers that were there in all country mm-hmm. as well, but some we actually learned from uh, Seminole style. So we actually have a like a collaboration or a mixture of Seminole style uh, thick handles mm-hmm. for actually hitting, and then some we actually would see like our Choctaw style, which is more, a little slender, a lot lighter. And some actually fuse the two together to actually make a, a chick chalk or Seminole style
3: really yeah I'd never heard of that that's cool yeah so that chick-chalk. was
2: and the webbing then used to be more of like a cross a actual X's or diamonds and it makes it sense though if that mm. was to be Chalko, but it wasn't it' was yeah. actually Seminole or a creek but it's, you know all of us being a relatable people, In the southeastern area, that we all played this type of uh, stickball game, Mm -hmm. and so um, it was just different rules for different hosts.
3: Yeah, well, and even the Cherokee have they have a net at the top of theirs, right?
2: Yes, they have kind of
3: some other tribes too. Maybe
2: they have like a big pocket. Yeah, a big pocket in the Eastern band, and then in in Oklahoma, they still play like um, kind of two stick, like an east to west game here, Mm. and so those are. So you got three or four different categories, and I can't go into detail because that's their uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. But that's you know how they acknowledge some of those things. As well, so yeah, in the southeastern tribes, the um, the differences. Um, the ball was a little bit smaller. The goals kind of sit similar, like as, like we talked about the hockey goal has uh, grown with it uh, within our recent years uh, when we play, you know, this roster, this time, and so. Um, when they started adding that mercy rule, you go to, like, if you don't make a point within the time frame that the opposing team has made nine, then you're done.
4: It doesn't matter if you're a first or
2: second quarter. Um, But if you happen to make a point before the first half within the time to make nine points or eight points, then you stay in the game. (laughs) Okay. And then towards the third quarter, if you are trailing by ten points, then you play till the end of that third quarter. But if they so happen to put tack on, like 10 points within the third quarter, you're still taking it because they don't stop it during the quarter. They stop it at the end of quarters.
4: Okay, yeah.
2: So there is some mercy rules. There is some regulations in the timing and the movement of today's game. When we talk about timing, time doesn't stop. And so today in the World Series, you have close to eight, 10 refs per game. Mm. And so... If a ball goes out in this parameter of the football field, then uh, a ball is immediately thrown in where it went out. Mm-hmm. And so it's it makes the game more like intuitive. It makes it more action, and it doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, if a person is playing and they happen to get severely hurt but they can't get themselves off the field, then they'll stop the game and kind of assess them get ems over there to kind of you know look at them and if they have to take them they pick them up and wheel them off the field and they start playing again
4: mm-hmm.
2: if a person's hurt where they're laying on the ground and they can get up somewhat some people will just go there help them pick them up and move off the field and yeah they start playing again so unless oh, it's something severe like that then they'll stop time but if it's not severe like if you just twisted your ankle pretty bad and you're just hobbling off the game's still going you can actually get hit while you're trying oh, to me. hobble off <laughs> So brutal. Yeah, and the thing is like some people aren't people are not going to move around you. Like if you're <laughs> if you're lightly hurt <laughs> Oh boy if you're able to walk off then you're able to get hit too while you're walking off as well.
3: Gotta be tough. As a
2: bystander, so <laughs> Wow.
3: That's nuts. And I love it though. Let us not also forget the power of the drum, mm-hmm. right? So tell us more about
2: that. So the drum is actually kind of a rendition today the Mississippi drum is kind of a rendition of the British kind of snare drum but it still plays an impact of the years before that it, it resembles kind of the heartbeat of the game and some people can correlate it to the heartbeat of the the people it's a um, one two one one two one one two one hit sequence where you can actually hear the drummer actually imply it and as it as it gets faster, the legend to believe that it can control the wall. So whenever the, the game is being played, it's some people consider it as elichti or what we call doctors, or some people would say like medicine men, mm-hmm. uh, would actually be the bearers of this tomb, but also the bearers of, you know, medicine that's on the field as well. And it implies that um, the old tradition, you know, plays in that time area and some people still have that instance of um, the understanding. In, in today's society, um, Olin, he kind of, again, Olin Williams talks uh-huh. about uh, how that heartbeat is relatable to every type of person. And it's like a, it's a, literally the hitting of the drum, it does resemble that, like that fast paced, of do, 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 do but it mm-hmm. gets a little faster it goes and like it goes over and over and over again so
3: it's playing through the whole game yeah it's playing wow.
2: through the whole game and olin he says this because he said it resembles us as babies as we're in the womb as close as that we're still within the womb of the mother we hear her heart whether she's uh, calm or whether she's in a situation where it's fast paced or if she's frantic or if it's exciting or if it's uh, fearful or if it's celebration,
4: mm-hmm.
2: you hear all those reactions within that heartbeat. So we're familiar with that. Wow. And that's why he correlates that to definitely when we're on that field, it feels like we're home again or it feels mm-hmm. like where we were born from. And so when we talk about the matrilineal society, uh, that's where the big impact of our you know being as talked about people comes from. Even some legends resemble that the earth is kind of the mother itself. Naniwaya in Choctaw means leaning hill, but sometimes some people refer to Naniwaya as mother mound. Mm -hmm. And so this mound, as the legend says, or one of the legends says, is that we were actually born from this mound itself into the existence of the world. And so here we see this correlation between females as mothers, as aunties, as life givers into the men and women that are now known as the Choctaw people. And so it even plays a part of our language, too. I like saying this part because it's still so fascinating to me that whenever you talk about my mother or my grandmother, they actually begin with the word sa. And mind you, sa is actually something that belongs to you, like a part of you. Mm-hmm. So I will say like uh, like your hand is what we'll call sabak because
4: mm-hmm.
2: it's attached to you. Sahnali yeah. is like my leg. Mm-hmm. Sai is my feet, my foot, my feet. Mm-hmm. Sanishkin is my eyes. All the sa s upsilon, It's like it's something that's a part of me or even within me, like my spirit or uh, my heart or um, my thoughts or my emotions. It's, it it derives from me or to me. Then like if it's an ownership, like, like a, my uh, water or my dog, you would hear ah. So that. ah um, um yeah. depending if it's followed by a vowel or consonant that's possession like uh, it's you know my car you know onkam mm-hmm. or you say um uh, mufi my dog
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: those are objects or other things that's not pertaining to my body or my feelings but mother though like inki inki's father but you say uh, anki is a k i anki's my father but when I say sashki that's my mother. And it just shows that wow,
4: I, I was that. born
2: from her, yeah. like I'm actually an extension of her. And my grandmother, that was her mother, is she's an extension of her. That's why we say South That's where that correlation of that language goes too. So when we talk about some of these legends about coming from the earth or coming from the ground itself, you hear that you know you you can relate that to that creation of being. And so whenever Olin would tell that story about the mother's heartbeat, we all have that we already all have that understanding. We feel that because we are all born, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so it's already pre-programmed into us or it's already destined for us to hear. It's just whether we hear it again as we're more more matured. It's just like you you come to the beginning stages before you actually see the sun. That's where um, whenever we play the game, when you hear those drums, it it reminds you of peace. It reminds you of clarity. It kind of reminds you of the things before... You hear all these other concepts of man where, you know, stress or whatever uh, that you see today that you have so many things going on. But whenever you get that game set and you hear those drums, there's nothing out there but the ball and then your reaction, your um, your moves towards the being proactive on the field and your kind of reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of thought goes into it. It's more about whether well, I'm going to move or I'm not going to move.
3: And I like how when you were talking about that, you were looking around the room as if you were on the field right <laughs> yeah. then, kind of looking towards the pole, looking at the players. Mm-hmm. Wow. What, a, what an interesting thing about the drum and what it actually means. That, that opens up a whole new world to me about what I've always thought about the drum itself. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the person who plays the drum, who, who does that?
2: So today, there are people like, are chosen, I guess. Or if some people have an interest, they'll find a drummer. And it's kind of up to that drummer's discretion whether they allow them to actually borrow their drum mm-hmm. or have them make their own drum so they can actually get to that point. And usually, it was only men that carried the drum. But like everything, you know, we transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have to. And so uh, within the last, I think, was it 2018 or 2017? They actually had the first female drummer, actually from Mississippi, come out. And she was a daughter of one of the the drummers. Because I guess he didn't have a son, or none Mm -hmm. of his sons were there to actually carry it on. So his daughter had a genuine interest and actually carried it. And so now we have a few more uh, females that are actually drumming. And so it's not like those old laws of, like, women can't be in the center of this because of something of this thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It definitely, like even war, like war dances or war enactments or like the game of stickball in general, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only male, but for us as Choctaw people, uh, I wouldn't say that we're not just progressive, but we are just saying that they are also equal too. And so that's where, if not better than or more aggressive than some of the men too, uh, which is pretty true <laughs> to see some okay. of the women play.
4: Choctaw hoyos. Yeah, Choctaw
2: hoyos. Yeah. <laughs> And so it just makes me understand a little bit more that we're always progressing to actually kind of help, not just just to keep it going, but actually, actually to you know follow that duty for us as people, as chuck the people to kind of don't ever let it go away. Yeah. And so, um, definitely, if they're chosen, or if a uh, person that goes to the drummer, and I guess if they make their own drum, (laughs) some people buy their own drum, like some people sell it, and some people try to drum and. Some can do that and some do that. It's just not a particular role nowadays like there used to be.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but long time ago, the drummer could have been actually one of those lichies or medicine people that actually carried along control of the heartbeat and whatever the holistic is yeah. so from nature to what's on the field. Well, today, we kind of tell our own narrative with mm-hmm. that and not to keep it as a negative connotation, but definitely our own perspective. And so... Um, with that, you know, that's pretty much what I see as um, for that, uh, for the drum itself.
3: Yeah. And so the drum is pounding. The players are fired up and ready to go. And then what happens next?
2: Then you actually hear, depends. If they are walking into the field, you can hear the drums. Well, actually, there's, in the World Series, would you would actually have be set in different locations. Because mm-hmm. one of the things you cannot I guess experience that you cannot recreate unless it's there again is the drums. Uh, the people are led by the drums onto the arena or the field before you even hear people or see people. You'll hear the drums and they're going to that. <laughs> and like, just like it's magnified like 10 times. It's like someone has an amp, but there's no amp out there. It's just them yeah. hitting the drums, playing the drums. Cool. And then, then as you get closer. You can all start to hear it you can start to hear the clacks of the sticks. The warrior, or as the the players, they're getting closer, they start to, you know, it's all about vocables. whenever you connect the sounds and to the actions of what they're about to do, it just brings all of it together. And so as they begin to get closer to the arena, you can start to hear some of what they call the Saha, which is kind of like your your cry or your shouts. You Mm -hmm. know, people will say war cry, but, you know, it's your your yell. And so... Um. Once they actually start to get to a part where they start to see each other, they start to start to do that kind of like a like an intimidation type of deal, and then you hear them just getting louder and louder and louder, and they'll actually make a walk around the uh, posts themselves, the goalposts, as they kind of look at each other, and they can either acknowledge each other or ignore each other, mm-hmm. and they'll walk around each individual's pole, and then they'll beat back into the center like a big right. snake, right? And then there, they'll kind of do a face-off where they're matched up uh, 30-on-30. And all those who are excessive, they actually go to the sidelines. And then uh, that's when they kind of find their respectable places of zones to play. And then you can start to see the refs come in with the ball and actually throw it up. And you would have a jump ball just like basketball.
3: So the ref gets you started. And talk about the refs a little bit. What's their role in all of this madness that's going on out there?
2: So yeah, the refs, they actually keep, there's actually, a, in the World Series of Stickball, there's actually a booklet of rules and regulations and things that they have to enforce that's on the field. Mm-hmm. So things like early hit, late hit, it's within their discretion. Like if they are hit too early or hit too late, then they can issue an infraction. So the infraction, it's, um, it depends on what how severe it is. It could be a quarter that that player sets out, or it could be a half that player sets out and so they you know enforce those things make sure that the game is being played within uh, good reason that everyone's following the rules if the ball goes out of bounds and the refs are able to because um, they'll have probably a handful of balls with them then they're able to actually return or throw up another ball into the air where it went out of bounds so that's kind of like it's mostly the refs are doing kind of keeping the peace making sure that it's clean it's safe that it doesn't stop and that it continues to keep playing. And I think there are some instances where they can actually make calls, like if there's intentional swinging the sticks or fights, mm-hmm. then they can actually pull them people out and say, You're done with the tournament, like, or you're done with the game, or you're done with the tournament, it depends on what their rules are. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty much the role. And oh, also, and then calling the points. And so uh, there's actually refs that watch the center field area. There's people or refs that watch the outer field, and then there are refs that actually watch just the pole itself. So if they, it as actually threatening to actually score. And if they shoot and like we were talking about before, if it doesn't really hit that pole, yeah, then they rely on um, they rely on the sound. Or if it's really close of how they saw or lined up with it, if it nicked it, then they actually get that judgment they actually can make that call mm-hmm. to say that was a clean hit or that was a that was a point yeah and so whatever the refs say for that point they had to come to a uh quick understanding and like mind you this is like seconds this is not yeah like exactly. discussions like you would see like a pause and everyone play the replay. Commercial break. there's mm-hmm. no instant replay it's all about that initial person's or that ref's call so sometimes some refs will actually see it and if it hits They'll pull the hand up and, like, you know, it's a point. But then if another ref or two saw it, they can actually wave it off. And be like, yeah. no, it wasn't. And then they're like, radio, was it? it you know, just kind of yeah. confirm. Like, yeah, it wasn't. It's like, okay. And then they just kind of go on and re-jump and re-throw the ball up and jump play again. Or if it was a point, then they count it and then they take it back to the center area. And so after a point made, after each point that is made, it comes back to the center area and the ball's thrown up like a jump ball, like basketball. Yeah. So...
3: Wow. Well, and and I'm sure you mentioned sometimes they have to break up a fight or two. Tell me how brutal the actual game gets out there because I've seen so many pictures of some gruesome things going on. It
2: it depends. It depends on how people play. If people are definitely trying to hurt someone, then they'll, you know, either hurt themselves severely or hurt someone else severely. Uh, Some of the things that are common is like, you know, um... I'm trying to say this nicely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of things that you would see common. It's like, you know, a, a hurt foot or a broken ankle or broken wrist. Uh, there's concussions. There is um, torn shirts. There are uh, gashes across the face, um, on top of the skull. There's, you know, there's a variety of things. It depends on where they hit and where they land, pretty much. There's torn ligaments. There's torn. Uh, ACLs, depending on how fast they were going, and it depends on how people were wrapped up or like tackled and wrapped, and how they landed. Because mm-hmm. some people can actually um, break their shoulder, some people can actually break their leg, or hurt their knee pretty bad. Um, even like in the elbow area, is almost everything. Because like, yeah, you're not wearing any protective gear, and so you're solely just being on yourself. Some even some people play optional with uh, shoes on or mm-hmm. with the. Uh, uh, they would probably take their feet up and play barefoot, and some people just play barefoot.
3: It feels like it should be all or nothing. You like, yeah. I wear shoes or you don't.
2: Well, it's up to <laughs> the player's discretion. The only thing is you can't do is like I wear, love that
3: though. Yeah. It's free for all. You do what you need to do.
2: I do say it depends on yeah the player's discretion if they want to wear shoes or not. It's up to them. And then the, really all that's required of them is to actually wear the jersey with the the team and the number and just shorts or whatever it doesn't mean you have to wear like gym shorts uh there's something people that war compression shorts you know or like undies <laughs> and they're played out there
4: seriously uh, yeah nice
2: um and like the younger generations today they're actually starting to um they don't play like bare, but they are starting to kind of show off more of their body like they actually <laughs> it's kind of weird because it's like i grew up in a generation where clothes were baggy but today right. it's now about you know Someone will actually tie their shirt up above their abdomen area and just show off the abs. And like, it was Mostly it's the younger ones that are in fit, not the younger ones that are big.
3: I'd be trying to protect my skin as much as possible. Right. Plus, I really don't want to show any of that right now. <laughs> what, have you had any injuries yourself?
2: Yeah, so uh, my hand right here. Oh, um, you
3: got a jankity finger. <laughs>
2: I actually, I went to tackle somebody, and my hand kind of dug into their shoulder. Yeah. And I guess uh, when it dug into the shoulder, it kind of jammed it. And then oh, when man. I ripped, when I pulled to bring them down, it ripped their shirt off. And I guess got mangled in that shirt. And I fell on it, too. So, I like guess all one motion. And I thought I was just bruised. But uh, evidently, I kind of knocked it out of place. Yeah. And so, the actual bone was supposed to be, like, in here. Right. In this area. But I actually shifted it up and Whoa. then when I shifted it up I thought it was just um I thought it was just a bruise I mean like a jammed finger because I had yeah. jammed fingers before and so it never went back like it, it fused so yeah the bottom of the side of the bones now where the bottom of the bones should be
3: oh where the my lower. Is <laughs> but you know the best part is you got the shirt
2: yeah I got the shirt <laughs> way to go um other than that um I really haven't had any injuries like that i never had a concussion I just twisted my ankle maybe once or twice, and all I got was like cuts on the eye and on the face. I had had the stick come come across my face before. I've been hit. Those have come from hits from the sticks. Mm-hmm. And then um,
3: been hit by the ball.
2: Oh yeah, I've been hit by the ball. Actually, uh, the ball uh, from me to you, I had someone actually throw the ball, and, and I'm a lot taller than they were. Yeah. And so when the ball let go, it actually hit my um, it hit my cheek. But also, in, in its trajectory actually went up into my eye. And so oh, it actually, this kind of cushioned some of the blow, but it still went into my eye. And my eye was kind of like, <laughs> it was only deadened for like uh, five seconds, but so it was the longest five seconds of my life. I'll move my eye up and down, and I can feel like my eyelid go up and down, but there's nothing, like it's all oh, black.
4: Oh, man.
2: And I was like, I think I'm gonna have to go to the hospital. <laughs> and like, I just kind of closed both my eyes and kind of, kind of opened it up, and it wasn't coming out, and or it wasn't working. And I was just kind of frantic, and all of a sudden, like I could start seeing, seeing again out of his eye. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm good, I think, you yeah. know.
3: <laughs> keep playing. Keep
2: playing. <laughs> or it was, I think it's close to the end of that game, but uh, still, it's pretty, Damn. pretty, um, pretty crazy.
3: What's it like out there to play? I mean, I would think that you're just constantly seeing sticks people where's the ball where am i
2: it's it's definitely like um i don't know uh once the so whenever you see the jump ball go up and that's where you start to see you know a lot of your your adrenaline's going and you're ready Mm -hmm. and if you're playing you know on your side say like i I remember used to playing shooter a lot Mm -hmm. and so i was an offensive player before the last probably six seven years ago when i started getting out of shape and I started playing defense just because I don't <laughs> have to run as much. Uh-huh. But I remember um seeing that happen and, like, just getting so anxious to actually get ready to go play. And it's just so much like you, you're waiting to actually see where the ball goes. Right. And sometimes you'll see people get the ball that's going to go towards your way, but then they just get smashed. And it's like, oh, well, whoever gets the ball next. And then, like, it's someone that's going to send it the other way. But then they get tackled and the, the ball pops out again. So it's like, you know, you're – they're kind of like that dog that's like, which way are you going, <laughs> you know? And it's not until someone, you know, actually gets it and throws it. And you can see partially from afar, depending on if you have good vision, that's you can see someone winding the ball in, or like flicking it out. And so within the five foot distance from where they're letting go, you can start to see that ball travel high in the sky. Mm. And so from there, It's like you have to understand trajectory a bit to see where it's going to end out. And so once it starts gliding or getting higher and higher and it starts to descend, then you start making your move like it's over there. Do I go over there or that way from the backside? Or then you start seeing the defense kind of arm up, get ready, position themselves. And again, this all happened within like milliseconds, you know, Mm -hmm. like or within seconds, literally seconds. I bet. That people were... Reacting, getting through their uh, their areas to zone, to format, to either to block you out, to tackle you, and whether your offense, you know, you set yourself up where you're gonna like am I gonna make it to where I keep the ball down here, or am I gonna to try to catch it and shoot it? It's all about either being proactive or reactive to what's gonna happen. And so it's, it's like a, <laughs> like you heard of like sheep or cows real quickly. And it's like, everyone kind of fits. So as the <laughs> ball is shot out, everyone's like moving around and adapting. And once they wait patiently within the next two seconds or second as it drops, then someone either catches it, sends it back, or someone hits the stick. Who was going to catch it? Or someone knocks the ball down straight to the ground. And then it's all like a race wherever the shooters are running hurrying up to try to go pick it up to actually lob it, so to drop it over to someone who's on the backside to actually catch it and shoot it, or whether they're trying to shoot it themselves to make it go out of bounds so mm-hmm. it goes over there. It's all about, and from a shooter perspective, it's all about lobbing it and getting to it the next shooter. Mm-hmm. Because if you're the first one to pick it up, you're really getting, you're, most of the time you're being tailed. Yeah. So it's, it's like <laughs> when you're the first one to go get the ball. It's mostly like you're the one that's getting hit first. And yeah. a lot of us know that, that we're getting hit first. And so it's about the second person who get gets it. it. Yeah. And it's all about the second person who's trying to shoot it. So that's it. If you lob it successfully, then it's a good setup to actually get a point off. But if you don't and you shank it, then you also like, you just kind of screwed the whole side because the whole format's up because everyone's yeah. reactive to that. <laughs> and again, you're, you're playing a defense, um, usually, so it's 30 on 30 and some people will put 12 on the defensive side. Some people will put eights on the offensive side and some people will actually have people in the center that plays both sides and only a small core, like six of people will actually play just dead center. Yeah. Uh, some will actually like two will go to the defense side to beef it up to actually be 14. And some will actually move it on if the possession is close to the offense side to actually be foot up to actually be ten. So it's you have to shift, you know, your your numbers around
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, just so that you can be, you know, uh, a good contender or at least threatening to actually make a score. So it's all about um, reaction and <laughs> proactive and reaction. Uh, whether you want to place yourself and be patient to wait on it for you to come or if you're just going to be in the right in the mess of it, and you're just going to help react to tear it up or to, you know, have no formality of it, in which there's not much that you can, like when people talk about football plays, you know, this center, this guard, and this tackle are going to pull and go this way. That is your formality. For this, for stickball, we have the goalie and this area and this area. This is their zones. When we say zones, that means like within the 10 to 15 foot radius or circumference or yards so of circumference, that is your responsibility. And if it's goes outside your area, you shift a different way to be supportive to whoever zones that way. Yeah. And so it's all revolving. Like it's, you just don't stand in one area forever. I mean, you do to be patient to where you read where it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so all that's happening within seconds, though. It's happening within, you know, the seconds that you're going there. And so if you're not quick enough to actually get to where the ball's at, then you need to be quick enough to where the ball's going to be. Mm-hmm. And then it wouldn't be just me having to be, oh, I need to be on the other side. It's more like, did I make a good look for someone that's going to be on the other side so they know where it need to be? And so, I, don't, I
3: don't think I could think
4: that
2: fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about, um, again, it, it's also about experience too. Yeah. Because if you're not really experienced in being that fast pacedness, then you'll just look like you know a lost puppy out there, right? Like, you know, <laughs> just like where did I go? And,
3: well, and you talk about experience. How many years have you been playing?
2: Uh, I've been playing. Um, so I started playing with the adults when I was twelve.
3: Wow.
2: And I was a big kid, so I was no way, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I was that big, but to the common man then, I think I was pretty... Especially
3: to the Choctaw, because yeah. we're not usually tall people. No, yeah. Where would you get that?
2: Uh, my mom, actually. My mom, her, her dad is actually uh, the, the, taller, the taller individual. Okay. So uh, me, my brother, and my sister, we all got his height. So yeah. I, I'm probably, I think I might be the tallest, or I might be the shortest of my siblings. So, like, they're only just a... You know, a centimeter or a hair taller than I am, though. Yeah, yeah.
3: So and you're it, all tall. You're just, yeah, we're all yeah. tall. Uh-huh.
2: We're all big, too. <laughs> it was just funny, <laughs> but it's true. I used to be the big brother, but then I became the small brother. <laughs> yeah,
3: you can't beat up on anymore. How many siblings do you have?
2: Just two. Yeah. I have a brother and sister.
3: And then are you... So are you all Choctaw?
2: Yeah, uh, well, majority, I'm all Choctaw. Um Like I said, there's um, my, my nan, my grandma on the mom's side, her... Her family have cachada in them. And oh, then, that's right. Okay. Then on my dad's side, um, we're majority chalked all, but there's some of that, like, I think might be like Dutch or French and mm-hmm. from descendant from a long time ago, but it's barely there, you know? Yeah. But other than that, it's for the mo- most part mostly native, so. Yeah. Documented wise, it's, um, you know, over half, or not half, but like 70 or 60%. Mm-hmm. But undocumented, which is that cachada side, uh, there's like a. 20, like 10 or 15% there.
3: Is there even documentation for the out side for anybody? There is, I think oh. there might
2: be, but I'm not too sure, because they have to go through that CDIB enrollment to yeah. actually get that. Hmm. But it depends on if you have the birth certificates and death certificates of the one who's a member of, mm-hmm. whether they were um, enrolled members or not.
3: Yeah. So, I just didn't know, you know, like... There are some tribes out there that there's really no enrollment. There's
2: just yeah. There's no, There's undocumented, and there's some people that are uh, only like recognized by the state, but not by federal. Mm-hmm. CDIB is uh, the BIA, so that's federal level.
4: Yeah.
2: So like the um like some Cherokee bands are um I can't remember if they're states, but um you know majority of them are federal. But then like uh, there's some people that are like Gina Band Choctaw. Mm-hmm. Moab Choctaw. Uh, I'm not too sure if they're state or they're federal, but they're, they are state though. Yeah, state recognized.
3: Crazy. So, is there kind of a friendly rivalry between the Mississippi and the Oklahoma Choctaw when you play? I mean, obviously, if like you're <laughs> playing against each other, of course, there's going to be a rivalry. But yeah. is there because of the Oklahoma being, you know, versus the Mississippi background there?
2: That's a good question. And like. I I came into the game <laughs> during that time in the World Series at a different time. Um, some still have kind of that old mentality of like, uh, you know, you're not real Choctaw or real Choctaws are here in Mississippi. Then, you know, some of our Choctaws here changed drastically for business. And like we were the original, original ones that left officially. And some of those that were right. stayed, there were the ones that stayed there. It was like, well, it's just a big mess. And so, yeah. Um, But today, you know, when I see a lot of people today playing, especially us older ones, we kind of are able to be more friendly. We actually uh, talk to each other more. Other than the field, there's no hostility outside of that. Yeah. And it's just kind of supposed to be left on the field in a traditional fashion. True. Um, So it just, we always known that we were relatives to each other. And we always pay homage to whenever we're there and whenever they're here. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's that little rivalry that does play competitively. And then some people actually will see it a little bit more than competitively. But it just depends on the individual. Yeah. And so it's always within good faith and good fun. It just happened to be, though, every time we play and get over there, they just have more experience and more uh, playing time. And then some of our people here, even though some of our people here play in different sports, they just don't grasp the concept. And also, distance here, distance is probably a factor that has kind of been a, a part that kind of plays in our playing that mm-hmm. we're not able to see each other as closely as often, yeah. And then some communities over there actually travel an hour, hour and a half too. So it's just it's up to the people that actually wanted to make that drive, have the drive to drive mm-hmm. from place to place. And so, and then what that entails is like money. You know, like do I have the money to go to this practice or whatever? Yeah, sure. Um, but it, it just depends on who's who wants it more. You know, yeah. so that's where that competitive streak comes from, and. Um, Love it. that's where we see a lot more competitive on the field and, and it's not just about Oklahoma versus Choctaw, it's about who's going to be the better one of the whole tournament definitely mm-hmm. when the World Series happens and then whenever we start having more tournaments here in Oklahoma, we always have an invite to anyone that wants to come play, like who has an organization or who has a representation so like the Chickasaws uh, the Livingston uh, the Cushada, Alabama Cachadas have come up here to Oklahoma, from Texas uh, we've had uh, some of the Kadoogie, uh, which is from uh, the Talco area, which is the Cherokees that adopted our style and play our style, chalk ball, stick ball. Mm-hmm. And then even allowing some of the people, or the reservation teams from the city come all the way to Oklahoma. And so it's just, it shows a big part of where their communities are allowing, but also supporting uh, the transition of their people to come over here and represent in Oklahoma. Yeah. And that's just phenomenal to see. Whether it's on their that. own dollar or whatever, there's no—I mean, yeah. whether it's the community or their own dollar, there there is a pride and there is a love, there's compassion for it just mm-hmm. to play ball because in Mississippi they only play once a year, but for us here we play you know exhibitions and stuff like that more frequently. But it's not like an all or nothing like the World Series. Yeah. So it's kind of like a play or exhibition, but still, when we have these small tournaments, uh, everyone brings it. You know, mm-hmm. and then I love that now where you start to see more of that. What, especially within you know after this covid happening people have lost players people have mm. um, lost members who were the players before them that taught them and so it definitely plays you know um everyone starts to get out there and actually give it their all because they don't know when, when's yeah. the next time they're going to play
3: whoa <laughs> that's that's heavy it is and yeah.
2: actually this weekend uh, saturday we're actually having a unity walk uh, there's a unity walk that one of our community members here in Durant he actually wanted to host it mm-hmm. and I said well as now work speaking from work I said we can provide a field for you nice. uh, for my director she allows it and she did and so I was like well we can't do much for you other than that it's like that's all we just wanted to do this commemorative type of walk this drum like we talked about like walking in yeah having players come in to walk in and just kind of say you know some words of encouragement but also honor and respect to those that have passed and then the kind of reason why we still play today and why we'll continue to play and then just have a little celebration of life but also then have a little game just so that we can say this is for you you know those who have passed
4: kissing goosebumps (laughs) it's really cool and
2: it's good yeah it's definitely good but it came from it came from a member and so we're supportive to it and um we didn't want it to be a huge thing because mm-hmm. we closed down Labor Day or Labor Day was shut True. down. Just and so even this interaction is if it's on a small scale that we can keep it within reason to actually have, you know, people not so uh, close but distant but also have a short segment of time so we're not trying to continue the spread. Mm-hmm. But um, it's still a good gesture and I was on board with it and my director was on board with it. And so uh, definitely wanted to kind of help this and actually be a, one a minute to come in the future, whether we get opened and or, you know, with this, a lot of time, you know, mm-hmm. to actually do something. Oh, so like the passion of how people are playing today, you know, like they, they bring it, you know, it's just like, it's, it's awesome that they you get people from Mississippi, you get people from Texas, people from Northern area and from Mississippi, again, different communities. You know, everyone just comes back. Even there, even some of them that are older than I am and some people that were my mentors, my players, that I watched growing up, some will actually be there, either they play or either they just watch. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just makes everyone kind of just jive again to where they're like, man, look how far we've come, you know, yeah. this time and age. And how frequent it is and how supportive we are now to actually do this more openly and, and then, like, makes you think what else we're going to do next is where the game goes. I love it. And so, like I was saying, people bring it, though, so unless we put, until we put restrictions on, like, whether the host says no tackling or whatever, Uh, We can say that and then enforce it to refs, but sometimes if we just allow it, then we allow it. But we know that we allow it without no fighting. And sometimes when fighting happens, it happens, and so we kind of have to regulate that. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it's just a very passionate and moving thing to actually see people come out or the players come out and play again.
3: That's that's awesome and so inspiring. Again, yeah. just to see all these Native Americans coming together. Period. Yeah. Um. Sometimes when there's also a mixture of you know playing the Cherokees, sometimes playing the Mississippi Choctaw, whatever it is. So I'm sure that people are going to start looking at your name online, trying to figure out, you know, what the sticks look like that you make and things like that. And you've got an Instagram page that people can go to, right?
2: Yes. Um, my Instagram page for my uh, sticks is called Billy Ickby. It's B-I-L-L-Y-I-K-B-I on Instagram. And it's just a little window of like some things that I've done within the last two years or year and a half. And there's a lot more that's going on there, uh, but definitely that Billy Icky is kind of like my stamp or my uh, my craftsmanship when it pertains to sticks, but also like uh, recreations of weapons and other things that I've done for my Choctaw culture. Oh, wow. I just haven't promoted it on it yet, but that's just kind of something that I wanted to do. Yeah. I'm still up in the air if I want to do it full time or if I want to do it when I retire or whatever. We'll so, see what's, yeah. what's
3: coming in the future. But That's there's exciting.
2: there's definitely a process that you can see from tree, from raw tree to filling to uh, some of the bending and just a little teasers here and there. That actually, yeah. I don't give you everything, but I give you some of the beginning and outcomes. So it's yeah. like, well, how does he do that?
3: <laughs> Magic.
2: But yeah, I, only, for now at the moment, I'm only on Instagram. And uh, that's kind of where I, I am starting to kind of drop a little bit of hints and pictures here and there. So
3: Yeah, so listeners, please go check out Billy Ickby Follow, this journey he's on. <laughs> and um, I know that he's also, there's a ton of YouTube videos out there of, of him helping others too to know how to make the sticks and all that stuff. Such a, such a craft. So something that isn't so impressive is the strength and power and precision that these natives must have had. To be able to hit that little ball to that skinny pole with a large amount of people coming after them at the same time. I mean, think about how they may have had a similar scenario in battle and to have killed buffalo or deer or whatever they were hunting and have been successful at it. So surely in the old days, that focus on their targets must have helped them to make you guys the best athletes that you are in the world in my opinion. I mean, I've seen it, it's pretty impressive. So thank you so much for being here with me, Brenner. This was really informative. I know folks are gonna love hearing about this. So
0: yeah, Coquille.
2: thank you for having me. The
0: Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma, to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning, small business programs support local economies and with over 10,000 jobs created Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're gonna love it. Yakoki, thank you, my friends.